Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going this evening, man? What are you up to? How's uh, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. Uh, ready for some some hammer talk. I've you know been working yeah, yeah. today, so nice ready, to sit uh, down with a drink and talk a little talk a little Dracula. Ready for some uh, Dracula scars? Are you? I'm I'm very ready. I actually am excited to talk about this movie. I think it's. I always like talking about the Hammer movies that are less, like, that people like less <laughs> than the more beloved ones. <laughs> you know, I gotta say, man, when it comes to uh, the Dracula franchise, like, the two that I always threw stones at were, uh, you know, I've never been a huge Prince of Darkness fan. That that kind of held true on the most recent re- rewatch. You know, I like it a little more, but I didn't love it. Uh, but the two that always held up as being kind of the worst were Scars of Dracula and the Satanic Rites of Dracula. And on rewatching Scars, I don't know, maybe I feel a little bit different or maybe I feel exactly the same. We'll see. <laughs> well, you'll you'll have to wait for my opinion as well. Uh, I will say, uh, man, I don't know if I should even say this, but I will say watching it this time, I did feel i won't say whether i liked it or not previously i did feel slightly different about it on this watch than my first watch so it did change for me a little bit you like it don't you i can tell i can tell in your voice you'll, you like you'll it see you'll you see like it. you like I'm, it. I'm not gonna say you have to wait it's a, it's a surprise all right now paul speaking of spoilers don't want to get too spoilery don't want to reveal things too much but i'm gonna go ahead and do just that I hear it that we may have a couple of special guests later on in the show. We won't reveal who they are, but before we dive into our commentary proper, uh, am I am I hearing this right? We're going to have guests, Paul? I, I believe, yeah, I, I spoke to their agents, and I believe <laughs> that we're going to be able to make this appearance work. Uh, we have a very tight time frame to fit it into. Uh, you know, they're very busy people. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we should have a few, uh, guests, uh, guests coming on to give us their little rundown of how they felt about scars. Rock on. Look forward to it, man. All right. Before we get to that point though, let's go ahead. Well, I tell you what, since that's going to be kind of its own segment, we're going to limit our recent watches here to maybe, uh, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and be honest here, Paul. I've only seen one horror movie in this past week. It's been kind of a, uh, a bit hectic this week. So, uh, I've seen one horror movie, so before I jump into mine, go ahead and run through one or two of your picks, and then uh, I'll do mine, and then we'll go ahead and invite on our guests. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I've watched a few this week. Um, I don't need to spend a lot of time on them. Um, one's not even really a horror movie, but I think I need to mention it because it was directed by Lucio Fulci. Uh, I, I finally watched his sword and sorcerer movie, Conquest. Heard of that? I've I've never seen seen it. it. Um, It is it is wild. Uh, It is exactly what you would think a Lucio Fulci sword and sorcerer movie would be. Um, The villain is a a topless woman wearing a golden mask who just kind of like walks around with a snake. Everything is bathed in heavy fog, so much fog that most shots are difficult to make out. Like it is, what the hell? It is a choice, man. Are we like, talking like the fog end of in the that Beyond movie fog? is a fucking choice. Yeah, like the end of Beyond Fog, like throughout the whole movie <laughs> in every shot. Um, 
it's it's just wild. It's it's you know the look, the the effects are very rough around the edges. Like there's like these wolf creatures that are just very clearly like people in furry suits, and it just doesn't really work all together. But it has a it has an energy to it that is just very fun and bonkers. And I had a good time with it. And it's like 88 minutes, so you know whatever. Um. I also checked out uh, a new Vinegar Syndrome release uh, called Alley Cat. It's one of their new uh, VSAs uh, releases, um, the archive collection they're doing. Um, You know, sort of the video store restoration project. Um, It's a movie from 1984. Uh, it's, It's weird because it's set up like a rape revenge movie. Um, But the main character... Uh, who would normally be doing sort of, well, who is doing the revenge, she is never actually, like, accosted herself. And that's what I kind of liked about it. So this is a woman who's a martial artist, um, very tough and independent, very beautiful. Um, And so, like, lots of guys are always, like, lusting after her, but she sort of does her own thing and doesn't really pay attention to it. And she goes jogging at night. Um, and her, you know, one of her family members sort of makes her take a gun with her. So, you know, because it's always dangerous at night and she goes jogging and she sees a woman, uh, getting accosted by two guys who are clearly intending to rape this other woman. So this woman sort of stops, gets involved and saves, uh, that woman. Um, and in so doing fires her gun at one of the guys, not, it doesn't hit him, but he gets away. And the cops come and one of the cops is like a shitty cop, just like one of those like shitty, dirty cops who has a chip on his shoulder and is just as bad as the criminals kind of thing. And he sees this independent, tough woman who like is sort of like yelling at him for not doing his job better. And he's kind of like, where'd you get that gun? Are you licensed for it? Did you fire it? And basically what ends up happening is this woman gets put in jail for saving this other woman like the cop pins all this stuff on her and so even though she did this amazing thing she gets sent to prison um and from there she sort of like takes on this new vigilante kind of mentality where she wants to um you know kind of save people and then of course the other impetus for her vigilant vigilantism is that her uh some of her her grandparents, which she lives with end up being targeted by the gang because, you know, they know that that's her house. And anyway, uh, she gets sucked into this sort of gang violence situation. Um, It is actually, you know, some of vinegar syndrome's releases we talk about on here, kind of wacky, kind of weird, tonally all over the place. Don't always work. Um, kind of fun, like bad fun kind of movies. Um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I gotta say, I actually think Alley Cat was was a really pretty well made movie. Um, it was pretty intense. Um, yes, it's very sleazy. Uh, there's a lot of like lewd sex scenes and stuff that are clearly there just to entice. But on the whole, in that sort of vigilante subgenre i thought it was one of the better early 80s movies i've seen like that um and i thought the performances were all pretty well done i thought the movie was pretty competently made um so yeah alley cat was a pleasant surprise 
Nice. Now, you said that's part of the VSA line. Now, it, 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 remind me if I'm wrong, or correct me rather if I'm wrong, but VSA line, those are the ones that eventually sort of just go out of print, right? I remember during the last sale, I believe, uh, was it Spellcaster and Necromancer? Were those yeah. those both VSAs? And those I remember were, they yeah. did the countdown, like, we only have so many left, and eventually they sold out, and it was said that that was basically it. Yeah, the VSAs aren't getting re-released, um, and they are, they're much more obscure movies, so they're a lot harder to see. Um, each one is hand-numbered. Um, and the other thing I really like about the VSAs is they come in like a really nice, it's not like a slipcover, it's like a hard shell box that they slide into VHS style. So the Blu-ray, like it has like a hard outer shell of a cover, and that's what what's hand numbered, almost like the, uh, made out of the material that Arrow uses for their nice box box sets. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, yeah, you're it's, right, almost like a cardboard shell. Yeah, yeah. So so as a collector, they're they're beautiful to have on your shelf. Um, and I own, I think I missed out on like one of them, unfortunately. But I think I own almost every single one they put out. And generally, they are they're really great little gems to discover. Um, so yeah, I, I highly recommend jumping on those VSAs whenever they're released. I'm to the point now where pretty much when they pull one out, I just buy it. Um, but <laughs> this one should still be available because it just came out. It was released with the, um, most recent halfway to black Friday sale. So it's, it's a very new release. I'm, I'm sure there's still copies available, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was definitely worth picking up. Paul, I love Vinegar Syndrome, but I still haven't gotten my email notification that my order has shipped. I'm, uh, starting to get a little twitchy. Paul, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I, you know, I want my scanner. Con. I've That's already, all. I've already like dove into several of them. Well, <laughs> salt in the wound. What's the knife, Paul? What's the knife? Um, yeah. I, I also watched, are you in the house alone? Which was from their television box set, uh, Ooh, which that movie a, was fucking disturbing as hell. It's a laugh um, riot. But, that film. Oh my God. I wasn't prepared for how angry it was going to make me. Um, uh, but in a good way, it was very, very well made. Uh, man, seventies, TV horror thrillers are just like the best movies. Like they're just so great. Sorry. And they're uniquely, no, no, you're absolutely right. Those movies, there's something about seventies TV horror. That's, um, it's not quite like anything else. I don't know how to describe it. You watch them and you know, they're not, they're not theatrical, you know, and that goes beyond the, uh, the, the, the aspect ratio, but you know, it's not TV quite either. Like there's there, they just have their, I don't know. I, I think there are, plenty you know of what subjects. I think, you know what I think it is? I think it's that those were movies. So a lot of the movies we watch from the seventies and eighties that are like undiscovered gems were, were like really independent, low budget movies that had very little resources behind them. These made for TV movies had a shit ton of money. Like these were, these were well-produced movies because television, you know, they, they had money, you know? So, so a lot of these movies we're comparing them to had smaller budgets, even though they were made to be theatrical. Um, And so even though the shooting mentality is different and the kind of the look and feel of these movies are different, um, they're, they're beautifully constructed, usually well acted because they were able to cast people at a decent wage. um, And, and, very often very well written. Uh, so from a script phase on up, you know, you had professional industry people making this stuff uh, and making good money while doing it. So I think, I think we sometimes undervalue 
TV movies from that time because we think of them as lower rent when in all reality they actually were, were much higher rent than a lot of the other movies we're comparing them to. No, I think you're absolutely right, man. And I, you, you're right. There is kind of a snobbery when it comes to movies. Like, I mean, I remember growing up for years. I I just took it as gospel that uh, uh, the Rosemary's Baby sequel, the TV, the '70s TV horror movie, uh, "Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby." All of the reviews that I ever found for that, you know, ranging from John Stanley's Creature Features to, you know, stray mentions in Fangoria to people, you know, possibly chatting about it as an aside to talking about Polanski's original movie. You know, everyone kind of pissed on that movie. And, uh, you know, I'm a completist. I eventually got around to watching it. It knocked me on my ass. I uh, I think that movie's great. I mean, it's I've always said its biggest sin is that it's a sequel to a masterpiece. But taken, you know... Uh, sort of as its own thing. It's it's a blast, man. And there are so many 70s movies that are, you know, scarier than their big screen counterparts, I think. You know, the, uh, for example, uh, the Guillermo del Toro remake that came out, what, in 2010 of, uh, was it Don't Be Afraid of the Dark? Or... Yeah. Is that what it was? I think, um, I think that's right. Yeah. Something like that. It's Don't Something, 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 Something. Um <laughs> But the, you know, I mean, that had star power behind it. It had a lot of money. It had Del Toro as a producer. And it's perfectly fine. You know, it's it's a it's an okay movie. But you watch that original 70s movie, and uh, damn, it can still get under your skin. You know, damn, yeah. it's still super creepy. So, uh, no, I'm all for them. I, uh, I want to pick up that box set from Vinegar Syndrome. And I also... I believe um, the author's name is Amanda Reyes. She penned a book specifically about, I believe, 70s made-for-TV horror movies that I'm uh, I'm long past the point where I need to pick that up. So, uh, you know, just because here's the thing. I can only recall a handful of movies, you know, from that era, you know, a handful of TV movies. And I'm sure there are so many more that are worth uh, seeking out as best we can, you know? Yeah. No, I, I agree. I yeah, it's I. I'm always excited to discover a new made-for-TV movie from that time period, and I'm happy to see that uh, the Vinegar Syndrome box that they put out, which I think is called Te- Television Terrors or something along those lines, um, is labeled as Volume One. So mm. that makes me very excited. That's a promise. Uh, Whenever they say yes, Volume One, so, that's a promise for yeah. More. They and they did Cardona Collection, so there's a lot of cool box sets that they're doing. I'm really happy that they're getting into the more and more deeper into the box set realm. They've already done three of the Forgotten Giallo sets, which are all really great if you're a Giallo fan. Um, so I'm I'm happy to see them get into the TV world. So absolutely and they are they i mean they're knocking it out of the park oh they are yeah it's crazy i just i mean they they do they just they put out a box set of scanner cop and scanner cop 2 like i can't wait or i believe it's called scanners the showdown however it's titled but it's scanner cop 2 come on but uh you know and i i just i uh i can't wait to see them just you know they they got a ship they got to get to me that's all yeah so uh anyway my, uh, tell you what, I'm just going to pick this one movie because it's the only movie that I saw this past week, pretty much. Uh, sure. We'll wrap about that, and then we'll uh, we'll invite on our guests, Paul. Yes. One of the most exciting releases of the year. It's a Shudder original, and yet it's from 1973. It is The Amusement Park. From George A. Romero, kind of this lost film that was dug up, dusted off, and now is presented for our... Uh, Shock, our horror, really, our, uh, 
you know, with the every intention to disturb the living hell out of us, because uh, that's what it did, Paul. It's uh, I watched it in the middle of the day, couldn't wait to see it, and um, boy, you know, I'm in Florida right now. It was a warm day, and it left me with a chill, man. <laughs> uh, have, have you uh, have you seen it yet? Yeah, I did watch it. Um, I watched it almost immediately uh, when I was able. I know I was. Uh, looking at Twitter for months with jealous, jealous eyes as many of my friends who are, uh, you know, able to get screeners and watch things ahead of time. were watching it. And I was so sad because, um, I've, I've talked about this many times. Um, uh, but George Romero is, uh, kind of the, probably the most important horror figure to me personally. Um, a lot of people would think it was John Carpenter because of my Halloween fandom, but no, it's Romero. The Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead are just, I mean, I could do a whole two-hour rant on how it changed my life, and I've written about it many times and all these different things, but to sum it all up, he he essentially saved my life. Like, I, and, that, and that sounds hyperbolic, but I, I was in a very bad place when I first got into horror emotionally and mentally, and I had been going through all kinds of things and watching night of the living dead, when I did the moment I did it, um, provided a perspective, uh, regarding death, not just death, but like our custom surrounding death, like things about how we treat death, what a funeral is, why we keep going back to gra- I mean, just the conversation at the beginning of night of the living dead, where, you know, they're talking about like, why do we come back here every year? Like how many times have we bought the same wreath? You know, like the consumerism surrounding death and how, you know, humanity does sort of culturally everything it can possibly do to not move on. Um, and so we, we are constantly stalked and consumed by our own dead and, and as a metaphor for grief, um, which which ties really well into what the amusement park is. Um, and I've seen some takes on the amusement park. I mean, there's people out there that are going to tell you it's his best movie. There's people out there that are going to tell you it is his worst. And I, I mean, I watched, I, I watched this movie and I was just absolutely floored by it. Um, I mean, it, it was everything I wanted it to be um, and, and kind of more. Uh, And perfectly in line with that sort of biting satire uh, social deconstruction that I want out of an early 70s Romero film. Yeah, yeah, it 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 leveled me. And I got to admit, man, I early on when it had been announced and it it was announced some time ago that they had found uh, a a surviving 16 millimeter film print, you know, uh, I, I remember reading some of the early quips about it, you know, being like this, uh, this just monstrous movie. Like it's just utterly horrifying. It's one of his most powerful works, you know, it was being built up so much and all that was undercut with the revelation that it was essentially an educational film that was funded by a church. It was uh, funded by was it the Lutheran uh, society. And so honestly, I, I, I got to tell you, man, like even when shutter picked it up and even as buzz started to build, I was a little braced for the possibility that the movie might disappoint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talked about like uh, most of the people we know online having seen it, Paul, 
I'm fairly certain you and I are the last two to have seen it. Um, yeah. <laughs> to go by the Sadly, reviews. Sadly, that is true. It makes me feel like I'm not a good enough Romero fan. <laughs> like, I should have found a way. You should have found a way. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I got to say, after having seen it, it, um, it, I don't even know what my expectations for it were by the time I pressed play, but it was, you know... It, Every bit as horrific as his most horrific movie. It's every bit as human and concerned with the human condition and an aspect of the human condition that he didn't necessarily delve into often, but it was certainly done with the same sort of care and depth that he's he's approached his other movies with. Uh, it's sorry, just to let people know out there if they haven't seen it yet, if they don't know that much about it, it uh, stars a man named Lincoln Maisel who was actually one of the stars of Martin. Uh, I'm not going to, if you haven't seen Martin, I'm not going to ruin who the guy is for you because, well, he figures into the ending and holy shit, that ending. But um, no, the amusement park stars uh, Lincoln Maisel is an older man who, <laughs> I Paul, I don't, so the movie is kind of this, and I'm not spoiling anything. If you've seen a movie before, y- you know how it's going to end based on how it begins. You just are. Uh, but it's kind of a Mobius strip of a movie that it begins where it ends. It ends where it begins, you know, and uh, it basically charts the travels of an older man as he takes a day strolling about an amusement park. And over the course of this day in doing that, he is subjected to all of the abuse and, um, uh, casual disregard and any sort of measure in between those two things that the elderly experience in this country. And it's, um, it's deeply disturbing. It's, it's heartbreaking at times. Like I, you know, I, I defy you not to tear up, you know, while watching literally. Yeah. I cried during this movie and I look, it's not often that any filmmaker is able to make something because this movie is for all intents and purposes, an experimental film. It is not a traditional narrative, right? Like there's not a plot per se. Um, it, It is, it's, it's, it's sort of an experimental infomercial is kind of how it feels like it plays out. And yet there's a, constantly evolving emotional through line that feels just as strong as any narrative could ever give you. Um, and it's so impressive that he weaves it so effortlessly. And at the same time, while saying so very little, like he, there's not a ton of like direct dialogue and yet he, he probably provides one of the most biting indictments of how, like American culture sort of treats and interacts with the elderly that I've ever seen in anything. Yeah. (laughs) And it's so relevant to today. So relevant. Oh, and it will, Um, will, the the sad truth is, is I think it will only ever be relevant. Like it will, it will always be timely. Um, I I pray we get, I mean, the only thing that sucks about shutter getting this movie is that i want i i need not want i need like a deluxe edition blu-ray of this movie well it is, I need it is a shutter exclusive, a very fancy so. yeah I'm, I'm hoping that we get something 
um, because this needs to be in my Romero collection. Well, yeah, they they know the man's fandom. I think, especially given the fact that they've released previous exclusives one and two, they know the man's fandom. They know they're going to be leaving money on the table and probably a good deal of if they don't put out a physical release. So I I feel pretty damn confident that here in about six months' time, we're going to be able to stroll into our local uh, Best Buy and snag a copy. Um, yeah, and hopefully and- they have somebody that was involved that can give it – because I'd love to hear more about the production. You know, and, and I, I wonder- mean, yeah, I, I understand that it was you know commissioned by the Lutheran Church and they're – I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. You know, it's like, oh, hey, George Romero, director of Night of the Living Dead and the Crazies. And, you know, uh, would that have been was Season of the Witch a thing at that point? He okay. so according to the article I'm reading, this was actually made in between Season of the Witch and the Crazies. And I will say, like, my hope is that somebody at the Lutheran, it looks like the Lutheran Service Society, my hope is that whoever finally made that call or perhaps pushed for it early on, I would like to think that they knew exactly who he was and that he, he, that whatever he gave them, you know, the film that he gave them was what they were hoping for. Now, unfortunately, according to this article, the film was used uh, initially. I thought that it was shelved straight away. Apparently that's not true. They did use it. But um, apparently, according to uh, Mr. Romero's widow, uh, you know, it was said to be or thought to be a little edgier than what the Lutherans would have preferred. And then it was shelved. But, uh, man, I, I'm I'm hoping that one of them was a film fan and was like, I know a guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, I mean, got to say, it's kind of powerful, too, that there is it is an educational film and it begins and ends like an educational film where you have the actor of the piece that you're about to watch directly addressing the camera as himself, as the actor and not the character. And by that would have been so easy for them to lop off and just dive right into the narrative. But I kind of love that they left it. I like that too. Well, and it also serves as context as to what the video was intended to be. Um, and, and also like, you know, Romero was an industry guy. Like he worked, you know, he would shoot things for PBS. Like it it makes sense that he was probably connected through certain circles. He could have just got the job as a working director. Um, you know, and just said, Oh yeah, I've made some features. Like it, I, 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 that's the stuff that I would love to just hear about and kind (laughs) of, you know, see what that process was and, and everything else. I just wonder if there's anybody left. I mean, it's saying here, I mean, obviously, Mr. Romero is no longer with us. Lincoln Maisel is no longer with us. Uh, cemetography was by William Hensel, the, uh, or I'm sorry, William Hensman, who was the cemetery zombie in Night of the Living Dead. He's no longer with us. Like at this point, you know, even if they wanted to do bonus features, perhaps the only person they would be able to talk to is um, Ms. Romero. So, yeah, well, which we'll we, you know, that would be great too. So, uh, yeah. but I just, I'm glad that it exists. I'm glad that they discovered that lost print of a movie Me that too. we didn't even know existed. And now, you know, I, I honestly think it's an absolutely essential piece of his filmography. I agree. I a hundred percent agree. All right, Paul. Now I believe our guests are on standby. Would you, uh, would you like to go ahead and introduce them? All right. Well, uh, over over the course of this podcast, I've mentioned several times that I have invited my young, uh, impressionable daughters to watch uh, many of these Hammer films with me. And, you know, we've kind of talked in the past about potentially bringing them on to hear their thoughts. And uh, tonight, uh, we have the pleasure of their company. They've decided to join us because they did uh, join me for my Scars of Dracula <laughs> viewing. 
Uh, that was one of them there being startled <laughs> by something. I, I, I see. Thank you. Um, this is going great. So uh, I'd like to introduce them since you can already hear. Um, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Jane. I am um, seven years old. She's <laughs> very excited to be here, folks. Um, and you? I have another one with me. They're very giggly. I'm Audrey, and I'm ten years old. All right, very cool. So we, so we I have Jane. Age for a second. It's okay. It's all right. It's hard to remember. I mean, so many years pass. And... Spoiler alert: the older you get, the harder it is to remember. Just throwing that out there. Brace yourselves. Um. So Jane and Audrey, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, Paul, thank you for allowing them to stay up past their bedtime, presumably, to be on the show. Uh, Absolutely. Now, I, I've been so excited to have you both on the show. One, because Paul has talked about you so much. But two, you know, when I first got into Hammer Horror movies, I was about your all's ages. So it, it's always interesting to kind of, uh, you know, see a perspective from uh, – you know, well, rather a younger perspective on this type of movie. You know, Paul and I have been chatting with uh, guests who are roughly in our age range, but I, I think it's really important to remember that sometimes these movies were made for younger audiences, especially the Universal movies, of course, but definitely the Hammer films too, I think. So thank you so much for coming on and for agreeing to chat about, well, the movie that uh, we're going to be providing a commentary for here in a few minutes, but also just Hammer as a whole. So can I ask, you know, you've been watching these movies with your dad. What do you think about Hammer Horror overall? All right. I, I think it's good. I, I like it. I like uh, one of my favorites is Phantom of the Opera. I really like that. Yeah, one. but I fell asleep in the middle of it, but I liked it. <laughs> No, that's no, no. That's that's I. You know, I will admit when I was a kid, I fell asleep during a <clears throat> a couple of Hammer movies. Maybe even the Scars of Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right, now, uh, okay. So, Phantom of the Opera is a favorite. Do you have any others that you've watched that have been kind of standouts to you? Like what you know um, among your very favorites? I like. I like. We watched um, Rasputin the Mad Monk with us. Yeah, that one. That one was a bit scary because at the end he's like laying in a creepy way. <laughs> <laughs> um, we watched. Was it the? Uh, was it the Curse of Franken? No, not the Curse. The something of Frankenstein. You watched the Curse of Frankenstein. The Curse of Frankenstein. We oh, watched you, the you remake like too. The horror Frankenstein. Horror Frankenstein. <laughs> she did watch that. I forgot. And the that. remake too. Both of them. I watched it too. What'd you think about the Frank? Which which one did you like more, the Curse of Frankenstein or the remake, the Horror of Frankenstein? I like the first one. I like the the Hammer one, not the remake. Well, they're both Hammer. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> I like the non-remake. Why I like did you the like non- that one more? Uh, I just. I don't know. I just did. I like that he doesn't kill his friend. Okay. That is. Yeah. I like. Well, there's so much. There's so much um, Hammer movies with cutting up people. I don't know which one I like most. Now, does that ever uh, freak you all out? Like seeing blood and gore and kind of violence like that? Or you just kind of shrug and laugh it off? 
Oh, I know my my absolute favorite one. Is... <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna answer that question. <laughs> question has been okay, declined. He asked, he asked you what like when you saw like blood and gore, does it really scare you? Or um, do you just turn I feel it off? I feel like um it doesn't bother me as much because those the hammer movies they don't the blood doesn't look as real so it doesn't uh, don't hold my mouth shut <laughs> now have you have you watched any hammer movies that you found like really scary or maybe not at all um uh i think rest Re hmm. the um the horror of frankenstein in some parts it was really it was really creepy and I, I think the remake was scarier than the first one. Yeah, it is. It is a. I, I really like the remake. Uh, I, we're actually going to be talking about that on the next episode, and I think uh, your dad and I are going to be butting heads over it because we we have different <laughs> ideas on its uh, on how good it is. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> I, I like it. You can totally side with your dad, though. I completely understand that. I, I am, uh, I'm one of the rare few who actually really likes that movie. I think. So what do you think, Jane? What what are some of your favorites? Um, I don't really have a favorite, but I liked mm, the part in this part in this movie. I like the part where he's like in the room with Dracula's <laughs> coffin, and it says Dracula on it. <laughs> yeah. What? Thought that was creepy. Okay. She no. jumped to scars. <laughs> No, hey, that's actually perfect interviewing technique. That is one heck of a segue to where we were going anyway. So my hat's off to you for that. So you're right. Scars of Dracula, like you all just watched that. What do you what do you think? Overall feelings on it. Now, Audrey, I believe you said you liked it. Is that right? And Jane, how did how did you feel about it? Um well it's fine. <laughs> she has a notepad. <laughs> Tell me your favorite part of that thing. Me? Oh. Yes. Um, my favorite part was in the um, church. In the beginning, Jane. Please, <laughs> I want to finish my thought. <laughs> okay. In the beginning, where they burn, Dra where all the townspeople they burn Dracula's castle, and then they come back to the church to tell all their wives. They're safe, and then there's a bunch of dead women everywhere. I like that part. <laughs> no, that is that is a great part. I've never seen that in any movie like that before, and it was kind of a shock. I haven't seen that part yet. You didn't? No. Oh. Did you close your eyes? No. Were you asleep? <laughs> no. No. All right. Apparently, yeah. Jane just kind of zoned out for that. She saw the U.S. cut of the movie where they trimmed yeah. that, oh, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> She did see the scene where the guy was in, in his room with his yeah. coffin that said Dracula on it. She liked that. I thought you meant the room where they were. <laughs> okay. There were some inappropriate parts in the movie. Now, yeah, you know, I was going to get to that. Where, to, uh... Girls, be honest. Uh, were, were there any moments where your dad had to, like, cover your eyes or tell you to leave the room? Like, uh... He he never said anything, but I said I'm covering my eyes. Actually, I'm not. <laughs> and and also, she never tells us um um to close our eyes at any part of anything. Um, he does. Like I encourage them to face their fears. <laughs> yeah. Their fears. It's not only really my fears. I'm not fears. 
yeah. I think you are. Yeah. Okay, we... girls, you 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 got to be honest with me here now. Like I I'm hearing a lot of giggling. This is typically a uh, drinking podcast. So are you all drinking right now? What what's uh... what's going on? Do you have beer? Do you have shots of whiskey? What's happening? We have a bunch of here. <laughs> no, this is thing. Oh, it's awful. Oh, it they is. Found my, they found the beers that I've positioned for later Can in the I podcast. Can I have a beer? You cannot have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> this is the part where they make daddy look terrible on a podcast. This is, this is all a ploy <laughs> to get your dad uh, spoken to by Child Protective Services. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to have to let you all know this. <laughs> Yeah, hey, <laughs> Jane keeps losing her headphones here. I have earbuds, but they're just—they're too big for my 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 ears are too small. So. All right. Well, girls, I think you're devolving into giggles here. So. Okay. Why don't we? Why don't you leave us with some final thoughts on Scars of Jack? All right, Jane. What 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 did you think about the movie overall? In the um, end, what are some big things that we, or anything that we didn't say so far that you liked? Um, she said the quiet. She what about said, you, Audrey? Well, <laughs> I could I could say something for Jane. She thought that in the beginning, when the bat resurrects Dracula, just the bat, I guess, throughout the whole movie, it looked very fake, and she was wondering why. But I already told her, so she she is not wrong. That bat is pretty terrible, even by like 1970 standards. I already know the answer, even before I wrote that question. What's the answer? Well, the answer is I think that's probably what the producers would say if we asked them. <laughs> um, because um, in the olden days, they didn't have. Um, um, no, 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 no. Alright, alright. We're not, <laughs> we're losing coherence quickly. Okay, can I, can I say some of my thoughts? Uh, I, 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 overall, I really like that movie. I, I, like, I was, like, when, okay, so when Paul's brother, um, goes into Neil? Track- <laughs> Not my brother, the Paul character in the movie. <laughs> but when he goes, oh, I think his name is yeah, Simon. Simon. He goes into he goes into um Dracula's room to look for Paul, and he sees like Paul, like dead. He's got like Paul is dead. What? Something in? No, nobody told me this. Nobody told In the middle of <clears throat> something happened. Please. You're fine. Just go ahead. Can you hear? Go ahead. Okay, nope. um, but so and that that part was just pretty like shocking to me. Um, because like I was really surprised because Paul was a very big character. Can you hear? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um. But Paul was a very big character, and I was kind of surprised when he um died. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that is a uh, you know, he's one of the leads of the movie in the first half, and you don't really expect that to happen. I thought that was one of the uh, 
the bolder choices the movie made. Yeah, because like he was like one of the biggest characters, and I, he was kind of the, one of the main characters, and I was just surprised when they just walked in on him like dead. Well, it just very surprising. Well, I didn't know. Well, I think I fell asleep until this part. Um, <clears throat> I didn't know Paul died. Oh well, I thought yeah. Paul lived. <laughs> well, he did. He didn't. Um. Uh, all right. Well, I, I, I appreciate your girls' insight into this movie. That was really fun. Um, do you want to keep watching Hammer movies with me and maybe come back someday and give us another review? We won't be laugh as much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can laugh all you want. It's, you can it's laugh all you want. It's fun when you laugh. I like that. Jane, do you want to watch more Hammer with me? Yes. Yeah, but I don't want to leave right now. I know. Nobody ever wants to leave a podcast. That's why they last so long. <laughs> exactly. Why can't we just stay up? <laughs> it's not right. I know, I know. Well, you can, fair, you you can, you can watch a movie downstairs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. So, yeah, it was a very good movie. I really liked that. I really liked it. All right. Good, good, good. I'm glad to hear. And like Paul said, yeah, if you'd like to come back in the future and, you know, as you watch them with them, if you find that you like, uh, you know, one of the movies more than the others or whatever, just let them know. We'll have you back on so you all can off offer your thoughts on them. And then uh, we've talked about it a little bit, but once we wrap up this entire podcast project, one of my ideas has been to invite back everybody who's ever been a guest on the show to sort of put together a list of their very favorite Hammer movies. So if you all would like to come back for that as well, you would be very welcome. Well, I don't mind. Can I ask you one more question? Please. Okay, what? <laughs> um, okay. I can't find my notes. <laughs> oh, there they are. I love how you're banging around on the desk so much. You're making well, so much noise. I love it. Oh my gosh. So, where is that? Oh, here it is. Okay. Um, oh. Why did that Dracula kill all those people? <laughs> Jinx, you, you know? want to handle that one? Now, so... Jane, I told you this before we started the podcast. Now, you know what? That's actually not for, I, I mean, we laugh, and on the surface, it seems like a simple question, but honestly, as far as character motivations go, I think that's that's a I think that's uh that's an insightful question because uh you know all the previous movies Dracula had a uh you know a reason for doing all the evil that he did, but when it comes to scars of Dracula, um he's just kind of being a jerk. You know, he's a uh, he's a blood I, drinker. That's about it. I I oh, kind of yeah. thought that he was like just that. That's how he like survived. He had to drink blood to survive. I don't I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Although but, you know, when when you get to the scenes, like, and uh, your dad and I will surely talk about this during the commentary. But like, you know, when they're staging murders that aren't really murders, like when Dracula stabs somebody, but it doesn't really matter later on. It's just kind of like, what is? You know, I, I, I imagine when you live forever, you just got to do stuff like that to liven things up. Yeah? Yeah, probably. <laughs> it gets boring after a while. <laughs> All uh, right. Well, hey, again, thank you both so much for being on the show, and we look forward to having you back again. Thanks, yeah. girls. Thanks. Thanks for yeah. coming on. Bye. We appreciate it. Can you say yeah. goodbye and good night to the listeners? 
fucking bye, everybody that is listening or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Good night. This was their first podcast appearance. So. Yep. Really? This is a big deal for them. Okay, Paul, I think I think applause is in order. Ready? All right, we're ready. Am I, am I supposed to No, you don't have to talk for yourself. <laughs> but they can. But they can. You can. You can. Okay. There we go. All right. Bye. Thank you, girls. Bye, Jinx. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Jinx. See ya. See ya, Jane. See ya, Audrey. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, girls. All right, man. I don't know about you. I <laughs> I thought that was an absolute blast. So, again, thanks so much to Jane. Thanks so much to Audrey and Paul. Thank you for uh, for allowing them to come on. I don't know if they were up beyond their bedtime, but uh, whether they were or weren't, man, I appreciate it. So, uh, And hopefully listeners did, too. And hopefully they can come back again sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, they, they were very excited when I told them they were coming on. And, uh, you know, they, I'm sure they'd love to come back. Uh, they were... As giggly as I thought they'd be, which is which is perfect. Um, and I'm sure, like, right when they leave, they'll be like, oh, I didn't say this and I didn't say that. It was funny, like, watching them. I came upstairs after work and they were, like, practicing. They were sitting around the microphone, like, talking <laughs> ah, into it. Awesome. And yet, you know, once you actually start recording, that's when they get shy a little bit. And they're kind of like, uh, uh, you know, and, and freaked out a little. So, Paul, it, it's this, just kind of funny to see. This was the first step, sir. This was the first step in them becoming like superstar podcasters within yeah. the next decade. So well, they'll, they'll definitely have me beat, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I tell you what, I think we have just about reached that time. How about we go ahead and dive into some Scars of Dracula? Sounds good to me. Uh, uh, which right. which version are you watching? Like which disc? So I am actually watching the uh, the Scream Factory Blu-ray. Um I know there are two different versions. I watched the uh, the the main one first. I know there's a one six six version. Should I? Uh, is that different in any way, or is it just an aspect? I well, I it. I think one of them is the UK. I see. Here's the problem. I have the Studio Canal release. You I don't fancy bastard. I don't have the. <laughs> this is the one time in the world where I don't have the screen. Well, when I bought this, there was no uh, U.S. release. So this was my only way I could get a Blu-ray of it. So this was, you know, going back to when we talked about, like, why I went region free. I was like, oh, I, I, I don't want to watch Scars of Dracula for the first time in standard definition. So I, I like imported a, like the... Like a pleb. Like a Yeah, commoner. right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but you have, your version has more special features than mine. So I will be picking up the Scream at some point. Uh, maybe I'll do an article on it at some point. But, uh... Anyway, the reason I was asking is I want to make sure mine's queued up right because mine opens with like a kind of a long studio canal thing. Oh and yeah, let's let's go ahead and skip to that. We'll we'll go to yeah. the first frame of the movie proper. Um so my first frame starts with like a yellow EMI Film Productions Limited presents. Okay. So thing. tell you what, let me let me go ahead and scope out the 166 version. And see, okay, so EMI Film Productions Limited present. The runtime on this is one, th- let's see here. Bear with us, audience. Uh, <laughs> we're, so, we're so good at this after how actually, many episodes have we done? <laughs> well, let's not talk about it. Um, 134.57 is the time code on this. So Interesting. What uh, oh, that makes sense. Mine's 135.17, but I have... 
21 seconds of uh, like Studio Canal intro. So that was probably it, but I'm going to go ahead and check out the main version on here and see what, okay, it starts exactly the same way and it's the exact same length. So I imagine it's just an issue of aspect ratio. Yeah. A lot of times the, the original aspect ratio is the more matted version. And then the adjusted version was like what came out in the U S boy, scream factory, no stone left unturned. Well, well done. Yeah. I need to pick up that release. I'm mad at myself for not doing it. Damn. I apologize to the listeners. I'm watching a, a foreign Blu-ray. How dare I? <sighs> although, although I will say this uh, for the collector in me, the Studio Canal release has a slip cover, and the Scream Factory does not. And I like slip covers. <laughs> and yet, my disc still plays. So yeah, but there's no like cardboard around the plastic. So is it really a Blu-ray? You know, I got to tell you, I starting out before we start this commentary, you know, listeners, if you've made it this far, you kind of know we're going to digress. Admittedly, we don't often do it when we get right to the point where we're going to start the movie. But this is what's happening today. Um, I, apologize. I, 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 I remember collecting DVDs back in the day. I was right there at the beginning, man. 1997 first DVD ever was The Mask with Jim Carrey included with my Magnavox DVD player that I bought. Christmas of 97, still have that DVD. Now, I collected the Anchor Bays, I collected the Elites, I collected the studio releases, I collected the Criterions, and golly, those were fantastic back in the day, still are. But uh, I remember my local FYE, the first time I went in, and they had, like, I think they called them, like, O-covers at first, or something like that, or O-slips, something like that. And I remember seeing, like, cardboard slid over top of the case and I asked the guy up front, like, hey, what's this? And he's like, oh, yeah, I saw those. Uh, they're putting, like, cardboard slips over the DVDs. And I was like, oh, why? <laughs> and he was like, I don't know. And he was like, tell you what, you're the movie guy. Why don't you let me know when you find out? And I was like, got it. Paul, been about 20 years. Never found out. Don't even know the point of them now. I, I I can tell you why I like slipcovers a lot of times when they're done the right way. No, like liking liking is fun. I, I, I like them. I just want to know why. Well, it it from a presentation perspective, you could put different artwork on the slipcover than the internal cover. That way, you get two artworks. That's why I like it. That's literally the main reason I like it. So, like okay, with that's... Scream Factory, I like to get the slipcover so I can have, cause usually what scream does is their new artwork. And then the reverse on the interior cover is the original theatrical poster artwork. So I can flip that. And so when I pull the disc out of the slipcover, I get the new artwork and then I can look at the theatrical poster artwork. I like that. I, yeah, I think that's a nice I, presentation. I do the exact same thing, but 20 years ago, that wasn't the thing. Like literally you would pick up a DVD and it'd be like, Hey, here's the artwork on cardboard. And then you'd pull the slipcover off and be like, hey, yeah. there's the exact same artwork on a DVD. Well, the just, cardboard's like glossier sometimes or like raised or embossed, you know, you know. I just want to know what was going on <laughs> what if, in the minds of all of those executives who signed ooh, off on that when they were what like, about, hey, we're going to spend this much more money. It was pennies. For no and they were making so much fucking money on DVDs. It didn't matter. Oh, they DVDs were. are just printing money. The DVDs um, load like wine. What about what about the uh, Hills Have Eyes remake where there was like 
that like weird blood in it. Do you remember that? Like, yeah, yeah. you could oh, push yeah. on it and there was like blood. I still have that DVD. I wonder if, what that blood looks like now. Okay, I mean, so I can I can only go by my Saw Collector's Edition DVD, which was the hard shell plastic that had a blood bag inside of it with like a uh, a little vinyl saw that would float around in it. Paul, all of the red blood that would like because it had like red liquid inside of clear liquid, yeah. but then also, yeah. and so it would move around the case. And yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Kind of cool. yeah. Okay, so I dug all of those out recently. The liquid, the clear liquid is still there. Mm-hmm. No red to be found. It's like the blood decided, like, I'm out, peace, you know, and it just <laughs> it left. So I don't know what the hell. That's weird. I wonder where it went. Or I guess oh. it just probably turned clear. <laughs> I, yeah, what a bummer, like lost right? its color? I don't know. It's just... It's, wow. This, is, know, this goes, is the quality hammer content people tune in for. It goes to show you, though, <laughs> that, you know, the, the things that we think, the things that we collect, we expect, especially when it comes to movies, when it comes to uh, our physical collections, like, we expect for there to be a permanence to them. And we True. don't want to think too hard about the fact that a lot of the DVDs that came out in the mid nineties are now suffering laser rot. You know, we don't want yeah. to think too closely about the fact that those special editions and whatnot, you know, that had the neat covers are now kind of, uh, you know, they're not as neat as they once were. They're breaking down, you know? So all of these, sure. th- and I, and I have a lot of Blu-rays. I got a lot of DVDs, sir, but I'm looking at my collection these days and I'm kind of like, these aren't going to be here in 50 years. Of course, I'm also looking at it like I'm probably not going to be here in 50 years. <laughs> but, you know, our collections. I don't know. I will be things. I think that... Blu-ray Blu-rays are. I don't know. I, I, I do feel like I'm building a collection for the long haul. And I, and I feel like my goal is to create something that family members can re- like like a library. That you can go in and reference movies and find stuff and 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 discover. Like I love the idea that someday a twenty five year old version of my daughter will be able to walk into my movie room and literally just discover something she's never heard of, put it in and just experience a movie. You know, I, I like a video store style. Like, and that's different than going on to Netflix. Yes. You know, and, and and having this stuff just accessible because when you can physically pull it out, read the back, look at the art that gets you into a mood to watch a movie. So I'm trying I do feel like I'm trying to cultivate something that is long lasting, um, you know, whether or not they're going to degrade. I don't know. I feel like if anything's going to last, it's going to be a Blu-ray disc. <laughs> Very true. But who knows? Very true. Who knows? And anyway. the 4K is probably too. But um... the 4K is too. Yeah. DVDs are are. Not long for the surf. That's true. Those weren't very well made, especially the early ones. I will uh, say that my uh, my eight track collection is pretty sweet, and uh, I haven't tried to play yeah. any of them in a while. But um, I've got I've got a little vinyl growing, but that <laughs> yeah. that will definitely not be around in like fifty years. That's the problem with vinyl. But Wait, really, the, the artwork is beautiful. I mean, I guess if you take care of it, it will be. But I was going to say like, I... vinyl. But with vinyl stuff like temperature matters and oh, yeah. a lot of a lot of factors impact vinyl more than um something like a Blu-ray disc. Um but I I am taking very good care of my vinyl, rest assured. Um but it's mostly film scores anyway. <laughs> the best kind, the best kind yeah. of vinyl. 
but we can uh, we could probably move on to the commentary we said we were yep. gonna start like 10 minutes ago listeners if you're still with us bless you all right everyone let's go ahead and move it to the very first frame of the film itself we're going to be in black and in five seconds we're all going to press play together here in five four three two one and play all right as we noted emi film productions limited present shouldn't it be presents like because they are one entity i know it's like productions present it feels like it should be presents yeah yeah so so this was uh this was a big deal emi taking over Mm -hmm. and uh this was yeah and and it's funny because you you read stories about uh james carreras kind of like oh it's fine everything's fine (laughs) we got we got our funding and everything else but like they had this they had lost american distribution this was this was the end well, the beginning, the true, we all, we've said this is the beginning of the end a lot of times over the last several movies, but like Warner Brothers walking away, um, really I feel, was. I feel like that's appropriate for a hammer that was hard to kill off, though. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And, you know, each movie got 200,000 pounds and that was it. And uh, they wanted a classic traditional hammer double. So they did Scott. They wanted a Dracula and a Frankenstein. Um. So no, this did. this opening <laughs> with the bat blood. <laughs> okay, does this just feel like they're not even trying anymore? Like, is this just like, uh, uh, well, Dracula's got to come back. Fuck it. A bat bleeds onto blood. Like, I just want to know that bat story. One, I want to know. Okay, so I've read a lot of stuff about how this movie is the one that broke continuity, you know, because obviously his dust was uh, somewhere else at the end of the previous movie. It was in the, uh, what was it, the Abbey, and now it's back in his castle. I don't buy that simply because we don't know what adventures he had between movies. We're not told explicitly, you know, so I'm fine with that. More troubling to me is the fact that. Who who the fuck is that bat? Where'd that bat come from? I want bat yeah. story. You know, is that also a vampire or like a kind of vampire? I mean, the the bat stuff in this movie is really odd um, because the bats are so important. Like, it feels more like a spiritual successor to Kiss of the Vampire than it does to any Dracula movie to me. A hundred percent, and even even like stylistically, you know, like even story wise, like it just it doesn't quite feel like a traditional dracula film which i mean makes sense because when you hear about what roy ward baker was trying to do with it you know weirdly even though he had made movies for hammer i guess he felt he had never made like a true horror movie and so he saw the opportunity to do a dracula film and was like oh this is my chance to make a true horror film so i want to make something really despicable and upsetting and things like that so that's why we have like more blood in this one more violence but then at the same time you have like bizarre comedic sequences i mean it is just a strange movie tonally it's it's Um, kitchen sink hammer that's fact i you know it's funny that you mentioned the horror thing like i i listened to part of the commentary on this disc with baker and christopher lee archived of course from a previous chat and I will say it's a little bit disappointing to me that Lee himself was kind of fighting against the horror label. He's, you know, it was very much of a sort of, uh, I don't know that I've ever made a horror film. You know, <laughs> I've always looked at them as dark fairy tales or this or that. And it's like, yeah. dude, dude, it's come, best come not to listen to Lee's thoughts on horror. <laughs> <laughs> like I've heard several commentaries with him at this point. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. 
Michael Ripper! Well, it's not really a Hammer movie if Ripper's not involved, right? It really isn't. I would like to think that Michael Ripper plays the exact same character in every film. He just changes his name and profession. <laughs> he sure does die a lot. <laughs> he does. That's why For I think he's in him. every movie. I, I want to see the movies. I, you know, I'd like to think he's uh, the Doctor from Doctor Who. He just regenerates, but he just decides that he uh, he likes looking like Michael Ripper. So he just well, I mean, we like... do have a Doctor Who in this movie. Yes, we do. I can't wait to get to him because I <laughs> which, think he's which, actually... uh, yeah, we can talk about that too because continuity wise, like he's also named Clove, which is, you know, Paul. I got thoughts on that. I'm sure you do too. Uh, yeah, and I don't. I don't know if you want to wait. Like, do we wait to talk about that, or do we just go well, into it? Like... Let's wait for two seconds because I did want to say here at the very beginning. You noted that you know this was distributed by EMI, and that this was kind of you know we're 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 in Hammer's Twilight now. You know, this was the first mm-hmm. Hammer film to get an R in the U.S. And you're right. It, it, like it wasn't distributed in the U.S. by the likes of Warner Seven Arts or 20th Century Fox or Universal. You know, uh, EMI distributed it in the U.K. and apparently there was a small outfit named Continental Films that picked up the U.S. rights uh, and on apparently favorable terms, according to the uh, the Hammer story, which is the again the Hearn Barnes book that I keep referencing uh, mm. on this podcast. But yeah, so they picked it up. Unfortunately, what. I mean, Hammer had to have considered it when it happened, but, uh, you know, they didn't have the reach of the bigger studios. And as a result, this is a movie that was not as successful as the previous outings, even though this was a Dracula movie. This was supposed to be one of the money makers, And instead, it was, uh, you know, in the States, it was kind of, uh, eh, you know, it was all right. Yeah, but you also got to think that, you know, it was 1970 and, and horror was changing. Um, you know, the, what this movie does doesn't even scratch the surface of the type of horror that was starting to become popular. Um, it, it feels a little stunted in some ways, stilted, stunted, whatever you want to say, but like it, it doesn't, it feels on the cusp of trying to be something more violent, um, and upsetting, but not really willing to go all the way. Having said that, and, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it's really hard with this movie because when I, because it's so disjointed tonally, it makes me want to jump around a little bit when I'm talking about it. Well, and there's not a whole hell of a lot of plot to chew. No. And that's a problem. I mean, that's probably my biggest problem with this movie is like story wise. It's so freaking weak. Um, I mean, you got to think about the whole impetus of this story. I mean, we get this great, the opening is pretty solid. Um, so I guess I'll stick on the opening for a little while. So the opening is pretty solid. I love the idea of the townsfolk kind of finally being like, you know what? Fuck Dracula. (laughs) Like this guy cannot keep terrorizing us and they just attack him. And it feels like the kind of thing that would happen. Like, it really feels like we're seeing the third act a bit of a movie with this stuff. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's exciting. That's an exciting way to enter into a movie. Um, I kind of wish... I don't know. The opening bat sequence is, is a little odd and silly, and I almost wish it wasn't there. Like, I almost wish Dracula was just here. Like, like I, I'd almost rather them not show us his resurrection. He's just back. I almost wish they um, wouldn't show a single damn bat in the entire film, but we get a whole hell of a lot of them. Oh, we get so many bats, and they're so bad. Oh, it's worth noting um, that we have old unibrow trout in here. Yeah. Yeah, his makeup was a choice. Um, and the wig. But, no, I, but, but his performance <laughs> is actually pretty damn good. great. I... 
I would say the performances in this movie in general are all fairly solid with the exception of, I didn't love, um, Oh, who's Sarah's not Paul. Who's Paul's brother. What's his name? Oh yeah. The, the, the one who goes out fairly early. It was, uh, um, Simon, Simon, <laughs> Simon. Yeah. Well, no, Simon's around. No, Simon's the man. No, no, it is. Paul. I don't like Simon. I like Paul. Paul, I think is fine. Uh, Simon. I, again, I hate talking about characters named Paul because it makes me sound like I'm talking about myself. Paul's fine. Uh, but Paul's Simon Neil. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Uh, Simon, I didn't really care for, and he's in too much of the movie. But like, I actually think Christopher Lee's performance in this movie is pretty good, and one of his better Dracula performances. He like is he is so good. And it bothers me that he shits on this movie because it's like, dude, did you see the other Draculas? Like, in most <laughs> of the other ones, it feels like you don't give a shit. In this one, it feels like you're trying. And you can tell that Baker wanted to go back. Like, that's the other thing, is Baker does the thing that that Lee always wanted directors to do, which is, like, go back to the novel. There's several elements that feel... Like, this movie feels more horror of Dracula in some ways than a lot of the other movies. Wouldn't Not it be- like it's plot but oh go ahead no you're fine no you're right i was just gonna say uh, with a bigger scope like it's a good looking Mm -hmm. film and it really you know there are times it has an energy to it like you said i mean this opening sequence this is kick ass man yeah this is pretty fantastic well and as you well know like i i have recently become a huge roy baker roy ward baker fan i think he's a, a a phenomenal director now um, this is the I mean, guy who did the Gorgon. He did Quatermass in the Pit. Um, yeah, uh, and he did. Well, he did a Night to Remember. Or no, I'm so sorry. He didn't do the. Or, Gorgon. He did, uh, yeah, you're right. A Night to Remember, uh, Quatermass in the Pit. He did the Vampire Lovers. Vampire Love, yeah, which we didn't cover. I don't think. Or do, uh, are we going to cover? Yeah, it's coming up. It's coming up. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah. So, and then later he would do. Um, uh, asylum, right? He 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 ends up doing Asylum. Mm-hmm. He did a little hammer here, a little amicus there. He did the Vault of Horror. Yeah, yeah. And he did one of my favorite, like silly '80s Vincent Price movies, The Monster Club, which I still haven't seen. Oh, it's so fun! It's so fun. But anyway, I digress. Anyway, I I, I think it's very clear that this movie was made by a, an incredibly competent director. I All mean, of the these... effects fucking bats the effects are bad yeah i mean we'll we'll just say it the effects are just flat out bad um but some of that from what i hear because the people who did the effects on this had just done um what when dinosaurs ruled the earth right i think it was the same effects team like they're good effects people and from what they were saying their budgets were much lower than what Carreras had promised them Oh, and we should talk about the church scene, which my daughter adored. <laughs> my daughter's I like, mean, I like the scene in the church with all the dead women. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> is she is she playing with fire, Paul? Uh, no, age? no, torturing fire, animals. Really. Uh, yeah, no. She she's kind of like me. She's one of those people where if she sees something really striking, upsetting, she's kind of impressed by it in a movie. She's kind of like, oh wow, wow, they went there. Like she kind of just gets impressed by a movie having the cojones to to do something so disturbing. I way. love that. I think that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So I think that's what that was. She's one hundred percent right because that scene is you don't expect that. 
in the first 10 minutes of the movie, like no, an entire no. church wiped out. Like that's, that's, that's as upsetting. That's as shocking a thing as has maybe ever happened in a hammer film, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, and I think like when we talk about this being a horror movie, you know, there, we, we've mentioned in the past that some of these films don't, they're, they're labeled horror, but they don't feel like horror movies. I do think this movie squarely fits into horror, even for all of its weird uh, tonal kind of segues into other things and non sequitur sequences. Which is crazy um, to think that it took, oh, six movies into the franchise to uh, to get to that point. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think it, it comes from the fact that this was given to a director with a very specific vision and purpose. And I think that's also why it feels more like Kiss of the Vampire, because Kiss of the Vampire is is more horror as well, um, in some ways, and, and wanted to be a bit darker and more occult. This movie's not really a cult, um, but it, it definitely ventures into darker territory. It takes a lot of the tropes, you know, you, you've got people staying in the old castle and, you know, strangers visiting at night and being shunned by the townsfolk. Like, that's stuff that we've seen in other movies. But this movie comes from such an odd place. So now that we're in the scene with um, with Paul and the Burgermeister's daughter... I think we can kind of talk about how weird the plot of this movie is. <laughs> and you're right in this opening scene. Like this is the moment when we're introduced to our hero, right? Like the, the, the party sort that we of. just saw Paul is like sort of our hero because well, no, no, Paul... no, no, that's, that's the thing. I don't think he is. He, I mean, he is and he isn't, but this is, you know, when he... we're introduced to him, you think this is the guy who yes. is going to carry us to the end credits and the movie, right. you know, it zigs when we expect it to zag. I, I think that, okay, so my thought on this is that, yeah, they were trying to trick us a little bit and make it surprising that Paul bites the dust like halfway through the film. Um, Paul is far more charismatic than Simon. He's funnier, which we don't usually have a funny quirky main character in movies like this, which should be a, a hint that Simon's going to be the guy. Because Simon is our more typical hammer hero. He's he's more self serious. Um, you know, he's he's not very exciting. Definitely uh, our but, final girl here. Yeah, right. And and it's and and his relationship with Sarah is so fucking strange because Sarah like flat out says like, well, of course I'm attracted to Paul. Everyone's attracted to Paul, but I love you. Like it's just so like who would marry i don't know i if i was marrying a girl and uh, someone that was like well yeah i'm like super attracted to your brother and he's great and i have this really special connection to him but i love you you know that that should be a sign that things aren't all well in relationship land and the fact that paul's giving her like this weird like framed picture of herself that's like handmade like that there's there's some shit there that isn't doesn't quite track and they don't do sarah, anything with sarah would have had a hell of a time on twitter had she uh <laughs> had she been born in the modern day I think. but but so this burgermeister scene because bob todd was <laughs> was a comedy actor too like the guy who plays the burgermeister was like a big comedy actor and so that's why they got him for this because it's such a silly like benny hill type role and it's so over the top and so ridiculous and so out of place that i find it honestly really distracting in this movie, and it kind of brings me out of it a little bit because I don't think it quite fits. 
and like him chasing his daughter upstairs afterwards naked it's it's just very like weird british humor and then like the fact that this scene is kind of the driving force of the entire movie (laughs) (laughs) like because of this Paul is now a wanted man for rape because the girl like made up the fact that he was trying to rape her. And now the Burgermeister wants to arrest him. And so he has to go hide in Dracula's castle. And that's like what causes everything else to happen. Um, and I'm like, what, what a weird thing to base this film on. You're right. And at the same time though, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this movie was the a picture on the double bill with horror Frankenstein, right? Uh, yes. So by having a scene like that, I almost can see like a, a, a kinship between the two movies in that mix. You know what I mean? A little grislier, a little gorier, you yeah. know, some scenes of horror, but also you have like, obviously horror Frankenstein pushes the comedy much, much harder. But, uh, oh, yeah. you know, I, I, I wonder if that was maybe dictated at some point during the course of the production, like, Hey, you know, we need to uh, to sort of up the humor a bit and make this more of a piece well, with its uh, predecessor, not predecessor, but, uh, you know, its companion piece, as it were. Well, and the reason Horror Frankenstein had so much humor is they, again, they that was Hammer going, well, this is what the youth of today wants. They want sex, they want comedy, and they want blood. And, you know, I think that they started trying to infuse that more and more into all of their films, um, particularly these two. And there's another sense of kinship in that scars it's, there's a lot of like weird rumors and unconfirmed facts about this, but it's pretty clear to me anyway, that scars was sort of being tallied about as a potential reboot of the Dracula franchise. So like scars was kind of conceived as similar to horror Frankenstein is, Oh, we can start over. And there's even concept art for posters with like a different actor as Dracula. Um, so they, they talked like there was talks cause they, they were pretty sure at one point that they weren't going to get Christopher Lee back. So they were going to just go ahead and reboot the whole series, which might also explain the clove of it all. Um, because the intention was, well, we're going to start over. We do want him to have a servant. We're going to take elements from the franchise and kind of put them back in as we go. And that also sort of explains the, uh, kind of parallels it has to horror Frankenstein or horror, horror Frankenstein, horror of Dracula. <laughs> you know, if they were going to do that though, like seriously, if this was going to be the potential reboot and it was going to share a bill with, uh, horror Frankenstein, like if you're going to call the curse of Frankenstein remake, horror of frankenstein then the dracula the horror of dracula remake should have been curse of dracula no like that makes sense right i mean i'd be totally down uh but it would have had to been cursed this would have been a really piss poor remake though if that's what it was like i think i would have been much harder on it and it would have felt like the pointless narrative would have been a lot more frustrating if this was like a reboot to a whole franchise um because if you're going to reboot it you might as well just go back to your your big names like you could you know you could have you could do the whole like harker mina the whole story again you could bring a van helsing into it you know that kind of stuff so it's 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 a weird thing but from what i can tell that that was initially the thought behind this movie you know we touched on the uh, you know this story on the previous commentary uh taste the blood of dracula that Lee had become aware of his popularity in the U.S., and he was using that as, uh, understandably using that as leverage to, 
you know, up his pay for continuing to appear in these movies. And uh, it's funny, that's the, you know, that story directly affected the previous movie, but on this disc, Lee had actually related the story behind his finding out, and I didn't realize this, but fellow Hammer star Raquel Welch is the one who actually clued him in on his popularity in the U.S. Uh, he had dinner with, I believe, she and her husband, and at a certain point in the conversation, she just casually dropped the fact that he was like massively popular as Dracula in the U.S., and he was completely bowled over by that fact, which I think mm. is just another, you know, it's it, now it's a fun story, but at the same time, it's also a deeply well, we covered this last episode, but it is a deeply shitty thing to have done to the man. And I do wonder yeah. why why he elected to continue coming back, unless my hope is is that they did finally start paying him a great deal to be in these movies. Because as you noted, like in this film, you know, the previous movie, he practically was sleepwalking through it. In this one, we have a Dracula, and it surely was this on the page, but in his performance where he does seem like the Count from the Horror of Dracula. He is very much here the charming host. And it's nice to see Lee even talking at length here. Like, I, I'd missed that. I, I, I'd i forgotten how well Lee can deliver a line as this character because we've gotten nothing but hissing and glowering and not much in the way of acting from him for the last three or four sequels that he'd appeared in. Yeah, no, I agree. I like I said, I mean, honestly, if I was ranking ranking the Dracula movies based on Christopher Lee's performance, this movie would straight up be towards the top. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a controversial take, probably. But I really think that this is one of the best turns Lee has as Dracula. There are moments in this film that are that where he looks more chilling and more disturbing and really conveys the kind of creature that Dracula is better than any other of these movies. I like his makeup better in this movie. It's less like some of the makeups for him in some movies are way too like rougey, you know, in this, in yeah. this one, he looks like pale. He looks dead in this movie. He looks like he's dying. He's sick. Um, he, he just looks more like I'd want a vampire to kind of look. Um, so there's just a lot of elements. And, and again, that's why, I guess I'll, now that we're talking about it, th this movie definitely raised in my estimation on this watch. I mean, initially, I really kind of didn't like it. Um, and now I'd say I solidly enjoy it for all of its faults. Um, there, there's one thing I wanted to just briefly mention that we just passed over uh, with, uh, I mean, Jenny Hanley is Sarah in this movie in that last scene where she was talking to Simon and they were talking about how, you know, she's worried about him. And she was kind of like, he was like, Oh, you care about him. And she's like, I'm attracted to him. So is everyone I'm worried about him because he's your brother. Uh, and I just think that's such a, a weird, a weird scene because it, it's very honest. So it shows that Sarah is an honest person, but Sarah in this movie is also presented very much as, I mean, kind of a non-character. She doesn't have a ton of agency. That gives her some agency by telling her fiancé that she's attracted to another guy, but it doesn't matter. I mean, that's a little bit of agency, so I kind of respect it for that. But overall, that's one of the only things the movie gives her other than being kind of a sidekick to Simon, you know? And I, and I think that's a weird kind of 
plot thread to put in that doesn't again that doesn't really go anywhere i guess that complicates their relationship but i i don't quite know what to make of all of it like if it's an abandoned story point or if they just thought that it would sort of flesh out the three's relationship i do think that i i i like sarah as a character i i completely agree with you but her place within the movie i do like i think you know jenny hanley is very good as her um I will say in her brief amount of screen time, you know, at least comparatively, I think Tanya is a far more interesting character. Oh yeah, for sure. Even though like her, she's a confusing character though. Like what, what the fuck does the movie want her to be? Like, I don't quite, I mean, I I, I was going to talk about that when she's in it, but like, I'm not quite sure what the point of her is. Like, I like her. I think she does the character very well and again, I this is so weird because we keep sort of jumping to scenes. But like, is she when when she? I guess we'll talk about it then. I'll wait to talk about it then. But yeah, I do really I like her better for sure. Wait, but I do feel like the script doesn't quite know what to do with her or or sort of how to make her a bigger part of the story. Yeah, it, no, it's just like, I, I feel like a lot of the female characters in this movie don't go anywhere. <laughs> I don't know. Like, don't amount to what I wanted them, or I think would have been more interesting. Like, they feel a little bit more like they're important for the scenes they're in, um, but they don't always amount to much. I agree with you, but I would also level that same charge against the men in the movie, too. Like, I think it's an equal opportunity. Yeah, kind of it's, it's fest probably it not to... a sexism thing. It's probably just a script. <laughs> it's probably just a bad script. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and here's the horrible truth of it. I think, you know, OK, so I'm going to go ahead and reveal it now. Um, I've always held this movie as being one of the lesser dracula is one of the lesser hammer movies and uh having rewatched it i appreciated it so much more this time around but it also sort of brought into stark relief why i had always kind of disliked it i think this movie is incredibly well made i think it's very well performed very well cast and well performed but unfortunately the most important aspect of it is the worst it has kind of a thin not very good script like there isn't much of a plot. The, the, the dialogue is kind of so, so the characters are weak, you know, but Roy Ward Baker is like, man, he's trying to spin all of these plates as hard as he can because he's shooting the hell out of it. He's giving it an energy that it almost certainly never had on the page. He's creating these amazing set pieces. Like he's doing his damnedest to make this a great film. And I just don't think the writing was there to support the man. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's clearly made by a visionary filmmaker. Um, it, it, it has a voice. It has, it has visual structure, but the story has none of that. <laughs> the, 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 the script, the, where it, where it goes. And it's really a shame because had, had he been working with a stronger script, this could have been the best Dracula movie. Um, and that's, what's so frustrating about it. Having said that, I think the difference between the first time I watched it and this time is I think, for me, the filmmaking elevates it enough to where I no longer dislike it. 
Um, you know, I think it's well enough made and the acting is good enough. And the, the set pieces that work work so well that I'm like cool with the script kind of being garbage. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the opening and the closing alone, if that's all we had, I mean, that's some of the most spectacular stuff in all of hammer, let alone the Dracula franchise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's a shame. Like, and, and we talked briefly about, um, Sarah, well, Jenny Hanley, I think Jenny Hanley's really good in this. I is. mean, like, I don't think her character is great, but I think she plays that honestly out of all of the like wide eyed doe like hammer heroines. I think she's maybe one of the best. Like, I think she just embodies that incredibly well. Um, and, really sells it uh to a way where you feel you feel that innocence sort of permeate the the frame um i think it's a really a shame that they dubbed her i think that sucks and and again that was a situation where they didn't tell the actress and so like she went do we saw the movie do we know that the print that we have because i was watching some of the behind the scenes features and she noted that there was a print that does exist out there that does and that she had seen it that did have her voice oh. reinstated. Uh, so I, I'm, you know, thought. I was, when we I watch these only... movies, huh? when we watch these movies, when people have been dubbed, generally, even the good dub jobs are quite apparent. And this time around to me, I mean, if she was dubbed, it was absolutely seamless. Hmm. So I, w- I was just wondering if maybe they had reinstated her voice. I don't know. I'll have to look into that. I don't know. I, I assumed the only surviving copies were dubbed copies. Um, I didn't think that it they had those originals. I Because I, that's just, they dub it and that's that. That's what they sent out. Like they didn't, to my knowledge, it wasn't like they kept an extra print that wasn't dubbed. They would have only, well, yeah, I'd, I'll have to look into it. I don't, I don't know. I, I assumed that these were the dub versions, um, as with most of those situations, because you know, the, when Carreras like had someone dubbed like that, he wasn't like. Typically, they didn't like keep a copy, <laughs> you know, of the original stuff. I mean, that would be great if that's the case, and I would love to be wrong on this. So I'll have to look into it. I don't know. How great though does the. Uh the Tanya character look here. Like, honestly, I feel like she almost could have stepped directly out of brides of, uh, Dracula. Like Tanya's I just, I, great. Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you're fine. I just, I, <laughs> I think she's a strong enough. Again, all the characters are terribly underwritten, but in a way, I think she's a strong enough figure that, you know, you could almost imagine this being a Draculist, Dracula less is that a um you know I'm gonna say it I'm gonna say it one more time Dracula less go ahead try it try it Paul just try it once Dracula less there you go <laughs> it sounds uh, like I'm too drunk to say it but yeah. I only had one beer <laughs> I think drinking might actually help say it um but no I one could almost imagine a version of this story that didn't have Dracula in it and Tanya could be the Baron Meinster of it all you know I think that would almost be yeah. really interesting but um but no you know that's not the case but she's still a fascinating figure um. Lee, you're absolutely right. Lee looks sick here, but he also looks more like a traditional vampire than he ever has in this entire franchise. You know, the the pale skin and just uh, he he looks so damn striking in it that I honestly think this might be I I wouldn't say it's his best performance. I still think he knocks it out of the park in uh, Horror of Dracula. But as far as just the look of the man here. 
I think it, this is his best look. This is his Friday the 13th part seven to me like this. Yeah. This, this is him at the peak of his, his, his looks as that character, I think. And I also think this is the first time he's really, truly given a shit about the character since horror of Dracula. That that's something I do believe. I, I, I mean, even it may not be as good as horror of Dracula, but man, he's giving it an attention and a focus that has not been present in the last couple Dracula movies. And I attribute, I attribute that to Roy Ward Baker. Like personally, I think, I think the director got this performance out of him because he was not that, you know, I know he worked with Terrence Fisher and, you know, I know that, you know, Fisher obviously like had a, a great relationship with him. And I think he gives, I, you know, you and I differ on our opinions of uh, Prince of darkness, but I do think he gives a very good performance in that movie, but I think it's more striking here. And I think Lee is more invested in a character when he can, when he has dialogue. Like I, I think Lee prefers that traditional sort of host Dracula where he's, he's a cordial uh, aristocratic host um, that then is also sort of, a bastion of pure evil. Um, and yeah, I think that funny. comes across here so well. No, you're hundred percent right. It is, you know, I, you're right. It is a shame that he kind of like dislikes the movie. I understand if he would, it is funny in the Hearns barn book. Like they noted that apparently in advance of this movie coming out, he had informed his fan club that he suspected the script for this movie lacked connection with previous Dracula's so that, uh, you know, he could be more readily recast if he was going to turn it down. And I just, I, I oh, love man. the fact Those that, eyes, sorry. Oh, oh no, you're that look. Uh, there. Oh, okay. That's so amazing. That look is great. That shot is great. There is a later moment with the, uh, I believe the tavern girl, um, where he bites into her and it cuts to a close up of just his eyes and he's sneering. Yeah. That, that is maybe the coolest he ever looked as that character. I, I just love it. But anyway, no, I just I, I love the fact that Lee was so honest with his fans. I, I don't think an actor could get away with that sort of candor these days, you know, and um, I it's funny. This is the second movie in a row where I had read one of those facts about the fact that Christopher Lee was just brutally honest about his participation in these movies with his fan club. I love that. That's awesome. No, I agree. Um, <clears throat> I love the use of red in this room. <laughs> Like candles red, the curtains are red. Even my daughters, when when Jane was watching, she was like, "Why is everything red?" And I ta- I talked to her about um, I got I got really hoity toity, and I was like talking about mise en scène. <laughs> I was like, "I'm gonna give you a film film school lesson here." Um, but how does like, she feel about um? How does she feel about the auteur theory? We're not gonna get into that. Although <laughs> although Rory Ward Baker would probably not be considered an auteur, and that's that's one of the problems with that theory. Um, but <clears throat> anyway, no, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I like all of the stuff with him kind of being a host to Paul, like Paul is a stand in for sort of the Jonathan Harker character, um, works really well to me. And this, these are the scenes where I feel I can feel the remake vibes kind of shining through. Yeah. Um, the wolf hollowing outside, I, but Talking a little bit more about, um, you know, her here, it, it, what do you think 
So her character, again, we were talking about some of the characters in this movie and not necessarily like amounting to something altogether. I don't know what the word is, but satisfying, maybe like I was a little disappointed that her character ultimately amounted to seducing him and then being killed. Yeah. I mean, what 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 is she here for? What what is her point in this movie? That was something I legitimately couldn't figure out. I'm like, what? Well, you know, that's like we what were is she here to do? Like, there is that brutal stabbing, you know, sequence too. Like later on, and it's like ultimately where what is you know what are we meant to make of that? You know, right? Well, and okay, so this is um, okay, and I'm gonna mispronounce her name, Anaska Hempel. Is that right? I think that's pretty close. Okay. <laughs> Tanya. You, right? you did this a better job than I could have. So, um, so I, okay. So she, is she truly just like starved for affection or did she want to like eat Paul? <laughs> yes. Like, that's my thing though. Like, because normally in a vampire movie like this, they would start making out and then she would eat him. Instead, they, like, full-on spend the night together, and she never attacks him, right? She wanted to play with her food? But that's never been a thing in these movies. Well, but dude, how many times can we say that about every single installment? <laughs> I guess, but, again, it just, it feels, okay, so I guess sorry, my, Paul, do you, my are issue you is... Telling me, are you telling me in the year 2021... You have an issue with horny vampires? No, no, no. I'm I'm saying I'm interested in a vampire that like really was with him because she craved human connection. And almost like the bloodlust was secondary to that, and I'd like to explore that. Instead, it introduces that concept and immediately eradicates it from the film. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, here's this really interesting character who's not like the other vampires you've met before in these movies. This is something new, but now we're going to kill her. And we're going to kill her in a very untraditional way. Like, instead of, which I'm not even sure this would kill her if she's truly a vampire. Like, he just stabbed her a bunch of times. Wouldn't she survive that? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Plus, you know, <laughs> looking at it, I uh, you have always referred to this franchise as kind of a proto-slasher. Seeing right. Dracula wield a blade in such a way, you know, cutting up a woman who's just had sex, like, you're right. This series is very much. It's, oh, like, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, okay. And this is going to sound like fucked up. It's kind of cool to see Dracula just annihilate someone with a knife because it shows, it's like, it's like Bub the zombie shooting someone and not eating <laughs> at the end of Day of the Dead. It's like, Bub could very well just go eat you because he's a zombie and he wants to eat you. No, he just wants to kill you. He wants you to die. And that's it. He he has a desire to see you die. So in that scene, it's very clear, like, Dracula is killing her because he's mad and wants to kill her, not because he wants to drink her or feed off her or get any sort of benefit from her. And we don't often see that from a character like Dracula. That is interesting. So like, there's these interesting nuggets of character beats that we don't normally get in a Dracula film, but they don't, but the movie also doesn't explore any of it. It just throws a bunch of darts at the board and kind of goes, well, here's a bunch of random stuff. That's really interesting and different. Have fun with it. 
as opposed to really kind of exploring it in a way that like a Terrence Fisher movie probably would have. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. And I don't mean to, now I feel like I'm being really negative and I hate when I get negative. You, you brought um, me down there. So Damn. I'm sorry, but I, I, I really love that character though. But am I wrong though? Like, you know what I mean? Like, no, doesn't it feel not. like the movie doesn't do enough with her? Like, I don't know. That's, I think that's, that's true of everybody. I think that's true of, uh, yeah, I think that's true of everyone, sadly. I, uh, But that's the case with, you know, not just this particular movie, not just with this franchise, but I think, you know, we can start picking out Hammer movies, you know, as a whole, I think, and we start noticing deficiencies, I think, when it comes to, you know, kind of the writing. Like, the writing starts to go downhill a little bit more and more steadily, I think, once we reach this period in Hammer's history. Or do you think I'm off base? Well, I, I don't know. Okay. So I don't know that I would give a blanket statement like that. I, th- I think it's more the stuff that feels more like the classic Hammer stuff that they're expected to churn out goes one of two ways at this point. It either gets, yeah, it gets lackadaisical or lackluster, or it gets incredibly experimental, <laughs> like really, really off the wall, like let's go for the, let's swing for the fences experimental and that stuff I love, you know, like I'm a big fan of like captain Kronos. I'm a big fan of legend of the seven golden vampires. Um, I'm a big fan of the roll the dice. Let's see what the hell we can come up with type of movies. Like I love the later, you know, the Dracula's that are set in the seventies are really interesting Even um, because they did something crazy. Huh? Even, even satanic rights though <sighs> satanic rights is not great but it's still bizarre and fun and it's got peter cushing in it <laughs> yeah i mean I don't you know what here's the thing i may uh i may watch it and uh, i think play. satanic rights is better than you might remember but i i also wouldn't it's not as good as like ad or Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Um, but it's it's still fun. Um, but I don't know. I think I mean, yes, there's there's some a lot of missteps in the 70s, but there are also some some wins um and 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 things worth pointing out. And like I also love uh Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. I think that's a great conclusion to that series. I mean, there there's agreed some really great things that happen in the later years of of Hammer. Um, you, you don't get the same prestige that you get with the, with the early sixties, late fifties, early sixties stuff. But, you know, I mean, very few films post 1965 got that kind of prestige anyway, you know? Yeah. And again, like you said, blanket statement, it was, but you know, allowing for the occasional gym. The, uh, the other guy, like these little inspector guys, doesn't the one guy look like Sasha Baron Cohen? (laughs) yes <laughs> i could totally see him playing that character like and it would be hilarious but again no, you get 100%. you get this weird like comic relief scene in the middle of the movie and and i i'm i am all for comedy and horror i love it when it's done right but when it's done wrong it comes off as very disjointed you know like just 
kind of um, tone deaf in a way to what the movie is. And I don't know that it works in this film. I really don't. Because, like, Paul, Paul is the character who's supposed to be sort of heading up the quirky comedic aspects. But once you just completely bury him in Dracula's manner, there's no way for him to be funny. You know, he can't be funny anymore. There's nothing to be funny about in his situation. So you have all these other sort of quirky elements following him uh, that will never actually catch up to him. And it just ends up feeling like these weird non sequiturs, kind of like the Keystone Cops in Last House on the Left, where it's like, okay, this is so bizarrely discordant (laughs) to what's going on in the picture that it's it's actually kind of you know like a problem to to the movie as a whole yeah yeah i agree i'm sorry i don't have it's funny i always get to those points where i'm like i don't have anything to add to that yeah uh i will sometimes i just say like boring stuff so no 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 no. um no, I, I did want to say for a second that I really do like Michael Gwynn in this role. Like, he plays a a holy man, as it were, that I've never quite seen in these films before, where he's not the super capable Van Helsing type, but neither still is he, um, or even, you know, Father Shandor, as it were, but neither still is he kind of the ineffectual or overbearing type. You know, he he just... I love that he plays the character as just a good man who's in over his head. And I don't think we've quite seen that character before in these movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And every Dracula movie that passes like without Van Helsing, it's just, it's a little bit, it's like, why, why couldn't he be in this? (laughs) Put, put him in this. You know, like I I really do wish Cushing was in all of these movies. Do you get the feeling though, that if, he had been, and I'm not joking about this, but like if Van Helsing had been here in the midst of all of this, I think, uh, I, I don't think it would have been believable. I don't, that the story would have gone on for this long. Um, yeah, I guess I, so. I, I, I think, mean, you know, once he's it, introduced like to the castle, stake the some bitch off we go, you know, right here, it seems like everyone is kind of doing their best, but they're not quite, you know, uh, uh, uh able as it were to meet dracula and uh yeah i I just i and plus you know a a good deal of the plot revolves around the fact that our heroes really don't realize how evil he is initially yeah that's that's true i i will say you know we were talking about clove earlier and when it comes to uh i don't know man the two cloves honestly like i get it this was potentially a reboot they were going to sample you know the previous movies they're going to bring in him. He he really has no other connection to that character. They don't look the same. They don't act the same. They're two entirely different characters. I'd like to think that Dracula just names all of his assistants Clove. <laughs> yeah. What's your name? You know, Bernard, sir. It's Clove now. I meant to say Clove the first time I did. You know, like Dracula names everybody Clove. Is it like how Rick always has a Morty? <laughs> Yes. Do you want Rick and Morty? <laughs> well, not only, okay, so Dracula names everybody Clove. Frankenstein names everybody, like, fucking Carl or Hans or whatever. Hans. Honestly, like, you, given <laughs> enough time, Dracula would have renamed Baron Meinster Clove. I'm certain of it. It's a shame we couldn't get a uh, Christopher Lee, Baron, like, Baron Meinster movie with him. Yeah, those two together. That would have been pretty great. 
Well, it would have been fantastic. I, but I'm curious, like, what that would have looked like. You know, there should be an in-between quill, you know, in-between horror. And, well, I guess there couldn't be between horror and brides. I guess it would have to be a horror prequel. But, uh, no, I'd be down for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't be? I, I always thought they they should have made more, like, Van Helsing standalone movies. Totally. I mean, that's so essentially why... what Brides of Dracula is. It's basically a Van Helsing adventure. Like, totally. I, I mean, I wish that they had had the confidence in the character to be like, treat Van Helsing like Indiana Jones and be like, Van Helsing and the this. You know, Van Helsing and the werewolf, the attack of the werewolf. That's, Van Helsing that's and the... exactly it. They should have made him a monster hunter instead of a Dracula hunter, you know? like it... Yeah, exactly. And given, yeah. given that Cushing was one of their bigger stars, I can't believe that that's... I have to imagine that was mooted at some point, you know? But... I mean, yeah, hell, I mean today, it's uh... possible that, you know, Cushing didn't want to do it um, after... I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to know. But Cushing was a, a, a star. You know, he was an unequivocal British star. So it wasn't like he was hurting for, for roles. But he did end up getting pretty hardcore typecast in in the 60s because of everything he did with Hammer. But, I do love that we are in a Hammer pub right now. And maybe... We are in a Hammer will, pub. You know, as far as pubs go, not just places where people have had something to drink because... You know, there there are other places, like I'm thinking of the two faces of Dr. Jekyll that were probably impressive and, you know, their own I right. But I mean, as far as... Oh, go ahead. No, no, I, I was just going to say, like, as far as pubs themselves go, like, this is one of the more impressive pubs. And I would like to, uh, I don't know, I'd like to attribute that to the fact this movie was, you know, it was said to be what? Uh, it, it was meant to have a budget of something like 200,000 pounds. And... Paul, I did a little figuring, uh, accounting for inflation and converted to U.S. dollars, that would have been roughly like $4 million in today's market, which, you know, not bad for a film not like bad, this. Not bad, although some people say that that was an inflated number by Carreras. Oh, to, really? Where that number came from was, was Carreras. He was like, oh, this is how much each movie's getting. But when you actually hear from, like I was saying with the effects earlier with the bats, like, when when asked, the, the effects artists were like, well, they look like that because the budget he said we had was not the budget we had. Um, and he, it was vastly over, you know, overwrought. Like we we were dealing with one of the lowest budgets we've had for effects and we just had to come up with like something on the fly as best we could. And they didn't really care how it looked. So I I wonder if 200,000 was exactly what they got or if he just wanted, because what some people think was that Carreras was trying to assuage the fears that a lot of people had regarding the future of hammer, given that they no longer had American distribution, but how, okay. So for me, how crazy is it? Insane. Is it to think that there was a time where a Christopher Lee starring Dracula movie couldn't get American distribution from a major distributor. Well, especially after... That's insane. I, I have to <laughs> attribute that to the fact that it was R-rated and not because of the character's popularity. Because I refuse to believe that Lee went from this massively popular figure in the U.S., you know... To after Taste the Blood of Dracula, like nobody wanted to touch the franchise. Like the rating well, had to have had something to do with that. 
I think it was the rating. I, I think I think a part of it though is I think it's just a I don't know a microcosm for how how all major distribution companies like just sort of how far removed they are from reality and how how fickle they are right because it it still happens today where it's like oh you know this this movie that we didn't advertise and didn't give a great sort of release to didn't do well we'll cancel it or get rid of it or dump it to video it's a bad movie you know like oh Oh, we aired this TV show out of order on random nights and didn't advertise it and no one watched it. It must be bad. Let's cancel it. You know, like that's the kind of shit that that these companies do because they're they're driven by executives and not filmmakers and not artists. And they're not super tapped into the realities of the world. Um, The other thing is that tastes were shifting. But I, I, I just more mean in retrospect as a fan today, it's so odd because, you know, Christopher Lee as Dracula, it's held in such high esteem. It's hard for any of us to believe that any of these movies would have any difficulty being seen. You know, it's just like, oh, of course, someone's going to put this in 2000 screens. It's a fucking Christopher Lee Dracula movie. Like, of course, that will get released. Um, and yet that wasn't how it was. You know, time has changed what these movies are and were. Yeah. God, what a great shot here. And plus we're just coming off of a scene with Patrick Troughton as Clove. You know, we've, we've talked about him a little bit, but Troughton really is great in this movie. Uh, it's worth noting for fans out there. He played the rat catcher in hammers, uh, the Phantom of the opera. Oh yeah. He I played, did. uh, played the inspector in the Gorgon. Of course he is doctor. Who's the second doctor. Uh, he's eventually going to show up in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. He would go on to be in The Omen, and I I think he's just wonderful in the role. He is he is acting the hell out of that performance, you know, through some dodgy makeup and a bad wig, and he is still 100% convincing and arguably maybe the most interesting character in the entire movie. Like, his weird obsession and where that leads him you know, I, I, I think is kind of fascinating. It's something that we haven't really seen out of character in, well, all of Hammer at this point. Boy, that bat is terrible. But uh, I did read something. <laughs> Can I say that the, uh, oh, sorry, I was just going to say the fog in that scene was about 30% of the fog that pervades the entire Conquest film that Lucio Fulci shot. I was going to say, we're, we're, <laughs> we've gotten foggy tonight, man. Like, uh, yeah, that's that's impressive as hell. Uh, no, in the uh, in the Hearn's Barn book or Hearn Barnes book, rather, um, I, I just read this really interesting little tidbit. Apparently, Patrick Troughton hung a still of Clove being branded by Dracula in his toilet. I don't know what that means. I don't know <laughs> if that means he loved the movie and his participation in it. Or if he hated the movie and the fact that he participated in it. Not sure. He's not around for us to ask, but I love that little fact. That's pretty great. I mean, it's impressive that they got an actor of his caliber for that role, too. Because he was a well-known actor. For that role, you're absolutely right. Like, he is... And and I gotta wonder, like, if his role was beefed up a little bit to actually attract him to it. Because he's... he's Again, I say it, but I think he's given more depth than really anybody in this entire movie. And... It's certainly befitting him because, I mean, fuck, he was the second Doctor. You yeah. know, like he he yeah. had been in some major productions, and he is a wonderful actor. So, playing Dracula's lapdog, 
at a glance doesn't sound like it would be a role befitting him. And yet either through them potentially beefing up the role or him just, you know, enhancing it on his own through his performance. I think Clove is actually really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, Troughton could have played like Quatermass for God's sakes. I mean, oh, he, he, he would have been a good Quatermass. Now but, we talked I mean, about the rating like a moment ago. Like, yeah, this is definitely, would you say this is the goriest hammer movie we've seen up until this point? Like, uh, yeah, probably. I mean, I mean you've there, got anyway. you've got Dracula stabbing someone. You've got him cutting up the body. Um, you've got the the church scene um, at the end of the movie, which we'll get to. You got the the bloody breasts, which was pretty salacious at the time. Um, th- there is a lot of stuff in it that you know is a bit farther than any of the others. Certainly farther than anything Fisher would have been comfortable doing. Although I guess you do have the bloodletting scene. In uh, Prince of Darkness. So there is a little bit of precedent for it. But um, you know, I will but say, this was like, the year, too, when the uh, uh, the X certificate went from 16 to 18 in the UK. Mm-hmm. So they could do nastier stuff. I, I had read, it's funny, as gory as this film is. I didn't realize this. Uh, according to the Hammer story, only one film scene was removed entirely at the insistence of the BBFC, uh, which was uh, earlier Dracula bending over Tanya's corpse. Apparently he was drinking gore from the stab wounds in her chest and like her stomach. So that was something that had to be removed entirely. Other sequences just had little trims like the killings of Tanya. And as we'll see, eventually the killing of the priest and, uh, Apparently, they even toned down the sounds of clove dismembering Tanya with uh, with the saw. So, other than that, yeah. they they left quite a lot of stuff in this movie. Well, and it's I wish we could see that cut, um, you know, with that stuff in it because, yeah, I, I, I well, in the tiny thing, like, how did she die? <laughs> like, really? Like, how was she a vamp? She was a vampire. Yeah, she, had she was fangs. Like, how did she die? Like, he stabbed her in the stomach. With a I'd knife. like to think that she passed out from the pain, and that uh, you know, before she was able to wake up from her wounds, because she is a vampire. Um, Clove went and uh, dismembered her, and as anyone who has seen an Evil Dead movie will know, that's uh, your your time's up when that happens. Doesn't matter if you're a deadite or a vampire. That's that's the story I'm sticking to, Paul. That makes sense. That's all I got. That's all I got to offer here. That's all I got. I can accept that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, you're right. He does look great here. It does. You know, I do wonder, like Dracula is meant to be this very powerful figure. He has an assistant with him in this movie. He's in this secluded castle. What's with the goofing around with carrying her to bed and playing the gracious host this time around? Why doesn't he just whack our hero and drink our heroine? Why Why wait? You know what I mean? There's a lot of weird decisions that he makes. Yeah, and him carrying her away and not biting her, I thought was really weird. Um, I feel like in Horror of Dracula, he would have bit her um, because... You know, it's it's arguable that Simon would not have thought to look for puncture wounds. 
he would have just thought she was sleeping and out of it, you know, because she was stressed or whatever it is. So, like, it's very out of character to me that he would just, like, carry her into a room and leave her there and be done with it. Um, you know, and I and I kind of wish the, the narrative had spun that into Dracula sort of maybe... I don't know, a different kind of Dracula, an evolving Dracula, a Dracula that was less interested in the excitement of feeding and more, I don't know, trying to get to a place where he was seeking some sort of companionship or something. I don't know, you know, but like it it, it feels like an unfinished thought, if that makes sense. 100%. No, it does. So here we are. Jenny Hanley is looking beautiful as ever. Uh, it's funny, Paul. I actually picked up recently an issue of Cinema Retro. Uh, are you familiar with that magazine? Uh, no, I've, I think I've heard about it in passing, but I've never actually encountered an issue. Okay, what the hell, Paul? It sounds like you sobered up almost immediately, and for some reason I have a head cold. It's almost as though we're recording all of this a week after the last time we spoke. That would be so bizarre. Why would we do such a thing? Weird as hell. I don't know. I don't understand. The Twilight Zone situation. I do. I'll I'll open a beer just to make sure that I get back to where I need to be, and uh, I'll uh, I'll sniffle from time to time. So that's uh, that's what the changes are going to be. Uh, so no, Jenny Hanley is great. Though. In that issue of Cinema Retro that I picked up at my local Barnes and Noble, no, actually it was Books a Million, I'm sorry, um, there was an interview by Mark Cerulli with Jenny Hanley and Christopher Matthews, and it was about Scars of Dracula, uh, which is crazy, because, you know, it just came out, and here we are talking about Scars of Dracula, but um, <laughs> it's funny, there were loads of fun little anecdotes that were told within that issue. And uh, one of them was, I didn't realize this. Christopher Lee celebrated his 48th birthday during the production of this movie. Oh, I didn't know that either. That's fun. He was, he was, you know, and what's weird is you look at him and it's like, Oh, okay. He looks pretty great for 48, but also I feel like he should be older at the same time. I don't know. It's uh yeah, he's a weird kind of guy. Like he always seemed a little, perpetually sort of middle-aged like slightly above middle-aged like he for was, 30 he was, years <laughs> he was only ever 45 yeah right and then he right. was 75 and then you know <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's kind of fun i wonder if he was like happy about his birthday occurring on this movie or not given his sort of like feeling a little stunted playing dracula still I have this image in my head of like the, the, the production, like everyone bringing him out a birthday cake with candles and him just not being amused at all. Like he blows yeah. out the candles, but he's not happy about it. You know, one of those things. Jenny like Hanley singing... puts one of those little pointed caps on top of his head. <laughs> they're all singing happy birthday and he's just stony face staring at them. <laughs> just completely unamused by all of it. I shouldn't be here. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I do think but... I do think though that this movie, uh, we kind of touched on it, but like we talking about his looks and everything else. I I do think he sort of has aged into the Dracula character in an impressive way, 
And I think his, I think his age showing a bit more here makes him feel all the more powerful as a presence in the film. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, you know, we've, we've, you and I have talked about this before, but I personally think that that's the best that Lee ever looked as a character one, but two, you know, you know, it's not just his look, although his look is great because he actually looks like a vampire, you know, for the first time. Sure. Uh, rather yeah. than Christopher Lee in a cape. Uh, but two, you know, the fact that he is so verbose now, that he is given to like these weird devilish little machinations, you know, and that he, uh, you know, he is sort of skulking around the castle. It feels much more like Dracula than Dracula has in this franchise, at least since horror, I think, because, yeah. you know, once you get to Prince of Darkness, once you get to the previous sequels, it's just kind of like, you know, he's, this is his Dracula, I guess. But when you get the scars, it seems like there was a genuine attempt to maybe wrestle what he was and what he was doing into a more, um, uh, uh expected version of that character, even though, at this point, there probably weren't that many filmic interpretations. You know, there was Bela Lugosi. There was a gentleman who played him in the Spanish version of the Universal film. Uh, I think there was a black and white movie called Dracula in Istanbul. Uh, so I, I, I don't know that the tropes were set in stone at this point, but for whatever reason, Scars seems to want to delve into them a bit more than any of the previous movies. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. Um. So and I we kind of missed it, but the the last scene with uh, Patrick Troughton um, was, I think, a, just such a great performance. Um, he he really brings a lot to this role, and it very easily could have been a nothing role. I'm kind of imp- I'm kind of surprised they got him to play this character because he already... was a bigger deal, right? Like he wasn't like some no name actor at this point. No, no, not at all. I mean, this was this was post Doctor Who, which. I mean, but I say that, and at the same time, we have to acknowledge the fact that Doctor Who then was not necessarily what we know as Doctor Who now. It wasn't this massive entity like we know it now, and he was only the second iteration of the characters, so a lot of the show was built on what he did and what William Hartnell did. But he he should have been recognizable enough that it should have been a surprise to audiences that he was essentially playing the role of Dracula's lackey. But what's great about it is that he never, at any point in his performance seems above the material like he gives it his all and he's he's arguably the most interesting character in the movie yeah well and he feels like a character he could have played a lead in one of these movies like he could have been he could have played like a what a role that Cushing would play you know I think he could carry himself in that on that same level so it's really neat to see him in more of a lackey role and adding so much to that role um, and this movie in general just has, I mean, we get, we have a great Michael Ripper role obviously here. And just like this, I think a lot of the people in this film, like we talked about earlier, just elevate the whole thing, you know, even though that the story doesn't necessarily match the caliber of the performances on display. Yeah. And you know, you and I have touched on it certainly up until this point, but I, I don't mind ringing that bell, uh, over and over again. Everything about this movie works. Everything about this movie is firing pretty hard, mm-hmm. except for the script. Like, this could yeah. have been, this. if the script were stronger, this could have stood next to Horror and Brides of. And yeah. instead, it, it occupies this weird sort of nether region where it's like, this is one of the best mounted, best directed, mostly best performed films in the entire franchise. And it's all built on you know, a subpar script. And that's, it's just kind of a damn shame. 
Yeah. And 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 rubber bats. Rubber bats that uh don't look exactly Dude, the frig I that somebody had to have talked about that. There had to have been a discussion where they were like, you know, can we do anything else? Do we have to do these? It's funny, in that same interview in Cinema Retro, Jenny Hanley recalled that the bats <laughs> they were operated by two puppeteers dressed alike, all in black, with like red bandanas for some reason. She noted uh she was like, they could have been in a cowboy movie, you know? Um and she said the way they would operate the bats. One would stand behind the other and flap the wings while the first guy, the first gentleman, had his hands inside the bat to open the mouth and dribble blood. I love that visual, but I still don't understand why anybody behind the camera would look at that and be like, yes, we're killing it with this. You know, I love I love it, though, when effects like that are like crazy homegrown and, you know, even even if it doesn't end up looking great, there's still that tactile quality. It's like when you read about uh, the first Hellraiser movie and like how they made the heart pumping under the floorboards. It was really just like a baggie with like yeah. red blood and a guy with a straw just blowing into the baggie and sucking <laughs> out air. But when you see it, it's like there's a heart. How did they do this? Well, that's you know, the thing. but that's... in reality, it's just this silly little thing. That's the difference between the two. I think is that Barker sold it. Like, he made Mm -hmm. certain that that moment would sell, and I guess that's what surprises me about this, is that, again, this is such a well-directed movie and such a handsomely mounted production, and then you get to those bats, and it's like, guys, you you had to know that that wasn't going to work. You had to know that you weren't getting it on camera when you were shooting that. Especially because Roy Ward Baker set out to make something very scary. Like, that's what he really wanted to do, you know, and, and everything was in his camp. Like the X certificate, I think we mentioned this earlier, but the X certificate had just changed. Like it was no longer 16 or older. It was 18 or older. And the, the, the BBFC was allowing more stuff to come through because of that. They're like, Oh, well the age limits higher. So you guys, you can get away with more now. And that was sort of how they wrote that off. Um, and so that's why this movie's bloodier. It's more sexual. Um, you know, Baker constantly said he wanted to make a horrible movie, like like in terms of how it made you feel and what it was depicting. But then you have these bats. <laughs> and I don't think anybody could look at that and, and think that it was horrible or scary. But it, I think, again, the word on the street with that was that the money was not there and they had to shoot what they had. And that was, that was what it was Um, because these $200,000 or thousand pound budgets weren't really apparently that much. This is, there's something super kinky happening here. Um, This is, um, you know, this, this is the sort of thing if it happened today, that like the New York Post would leak like uh, you know some uh, some pictures of this in an effort to uh, shame an official of some sort you know <laughs> throwing that out there. What a creepy. And you know what? That, and you that... know what? If they're both uh, consenting, then uh, you know leave Dracula and Clove alone. Let them do what they want. I mean, he was into it, but I mean that last frame when you could see I, again. I think the we keep talking about, but the, the context too, in this one, like the red eyes are like the best they've ever been. Dracula's red eyes are so creepy in this movie. And the way that last shot was where you could see like 
one of his eyes in the background is, you know, Troughton was screaming in the foreground. Um, just evokes all these weird, yeah, interesting emotions. And and there is a, a sort of excitement that you can tell both of the characters are feeling by that. Like they're drawn to it in a, in a sort of twisted way. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's more complicated, uh, in some ways than some of the other Dracula movies, despite the story being like really overly simplistic because there, there's some emotional character connections and just relationship stuff that I don't think the movie goes far enough into to outweigh kind of how nothing the actual plot is. (laughs) Yeah. No, I would agree with that. And part of me wishes that, um, (laughs) part of me wishes, you know, and this wasn't the only time in the franchise that it happened, you know, if it were to have happened here, but part of me wishes that, uh, Terrence Fisher had developed the script Mm -hmm. and then had left it for somebody else to direct, you know, like I, yeah, yeah. Well, if Fisher had been involved, though, I mean, again, I think like characters like this priest and how the priest fits into this movie is indicative of the fact that Fisher did not work on it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. The, the way religion um, and good and evil is sort of good in this, like the the the, the sort of beacons that represent good are much more flaccid and uninspired i would ineffectual. say in this movie yeah well, not just ineffectual but like they there's no energy like they they're, they're kind of it feels like they're just going through the motions because that's what they're supposed to do um and I do think that plays character wise at least in the case of the priest because here's a man who i mean given what happened in the opening sequence like here is a man that got hollowed out you know mm-hmm which which I like, I think I would have liked a lot more if there had if it had gone somewhere and amounted to something more than what it does. Um, I mean, I, I do like the priest, and I think the priest is an interesting character, but I don't know if the movie gives him enough room to grow or to explore that kind of ineffectualism. Like, I, I, a priest grappling with his faith would be a really interesting thing set against Dracula um, and not something that we've really seen much of because most of the time, whoever's fighting Dracula is very much a, you know, empowered character that, that does not doubt their faith um, and, and sort of is, is driven by it. You know, we have the Van Helsing, the father Sandor, Shandor, whatever you want to call him um, of it all. And, and this guy really couldn't be more different than those other characters, but he's also not nearly as big a part of the narrative. You know, he's, he's something that they kind of go to him a little bit for guidance there, but it's a little too little too late. And he doesn't offer, he, I mean, he, he ultimately does sort of help them in the journey to, to whatever victory they're going to achieve. But I don't know that it's all because of him, you know, that they couldn't have found that path without him. Right. No, I agree. I, um, I do like that it is, I mean, he is well-meaning. He just, it, it, Troughton is kind of terrifying in this sequence. Um, 
Yeah. Like that, that big reveal I could see actually being scary. Uh, I did want to note because I think we've long since left it by, but there was this great little anecdote in the uh, interview, this really interview that I did want to pass along. I thought it was great. The scene where Dracula carries Jenny Handley, uh, <laughs> he was meant to pick her up and whisk her out of the room. Right. And, um, all is her, uh, you know, her intended watches on like, what the hell? And uh, apparently, Christopher Lee pissed off Jenny Hanley right before the scene was due to shoot when he asked for his stuntman, Eddie Powell, to do it instead. And she uh, <laughs> she said in the interview, she was like, I didn't weigh that much, you know. Um, but as it turned out, like, Lee apparently had a very bad back at the time. So he was... Uh, he was quite unable physically to pick her up and sort of whisk her out of the room. Oh, that's interesting. It's kind of funny. <laughs> it's like, which maybe makes him a little, uh, you know, maybe he's not quite as scary. Maybe. It's such a striking scene. Um, yeah. It's, well, again, you can, there's no question that the movie wasn't, like, brought about by a visionary director um you know the light like how and again this shows how pale he is in this movie you know in a lot of other dracula films he he has a lot of color in his face but this movie really does make him look dead and yeah like that look over her shoulder as he's drinking her that that sort of seriousness that look of knowing that that hollow hungry look but his pinched nose and eyebrows too, like he looks almost somehow controlled, but feral at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really a shame that uh, <laughs> his arguably best performance as Dracula comes in scars, but it's weird that that never gets, I don't know. I don't feel like I hear that talked about very often. I feel like scars scars is a really easy movie to kind of shit on. I've done uh, it. The, I've done it myself. Yeah, me too. In the Dracula sort of franchise because it it just has the least going on in it um story-wise like we've said and so it's it's easier to point to these other movies that all have these great characters and plot beats and things like that but the most important part of the movie is arguably dracula and how he shows up and this is probably top one of the top three if not the top dracula we get in any of these movies arguably top two like yeah. I'm, I'm very curious to revisit uh you know 1972 and satanic rites but as it is right now like it's yeah and it's horror and, in this i mean spoilers for those commentaries but my recollection of those is they're very i i find them very fun but i don't know that i would call them great movies i you know? really do love 1972 i am curious to see what the rewatch is going to bring but that is one that i've always really enjoyed satanic rights no sir no not, yeah. a, not at I'm, all. I'm curious I, I i i'm very much looking forward to watching them yeah 72 i remember really really liking but but again i remember also thinking like oh that's silly that's silly but but like in a not in a i hate this way but in a well, this is fun to kind of watch and have a good time with, but I don't know that I'd hold it up against really anything that came before it. Oh, um, I, I would I would hold it up against Prince of Darkness. I would hold it up against uh Yeah, see, that's where you and I deviate. But we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. 
Maybe so. Maybe uh. <laughs> then again, I I you know what's really surprised me about these rewatches is that I find myself liking the Dracula sequels more than I did the first time around or the first couple of times around. Absolutely. These I like a uh, Prince of Darkness, I don't outright dismiss anymore after this last rewatch. Taste the Blood and Scars, I actually really quite like in their own way. Um Yeah. Yeah. So by that rationale, like I, I'm hoping that I flip for 1972 this time around. We'll see. Watch me well, wind that, up Yeah, hating. that's very possible. I mean, and I'm also a huge fan of Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Oh, like yes. that's one of my favorites. So I mean, it, it's and I've watched that one pretty recently. So I know I know that that one's high in my estimation. But yeah, rewatching these has really raised them in in my overall like love for. Dracula, like they're much higher ranked than they once were. Um, but yeah, you know, it's crazy. And have we already mentioned it during this commentary that uh has spanned the course of a week? Uh, have we talked about the fact this movie was produced on the very same sets that uh the next movie was filmed on, uh, Horror of Frankenstein? I don't know that we did. Um, but that was something else that was a way that Carreras hid the fact that these didn't get the full 200,000. Uh, that was another way for him to like cost cut. Shady. Um, and Shady if you, man. and, and initially they weren't supposed to go out on a double together, but I guess eventually in the U S they did. And that was a really bad idea because when you watch them back to back, you can see like, Oh, there's Dracula's castle again. There's his corridor, you know, like you're seeing these sets, especially when you, you know, when you watch them back to back like that. What if uh, uh, Dracula and Frankenstein had kind of like a timeshare thing going on? I mean, that would make sense. They, you know, I could see that working. Well, especially cause these were both supposed to be at one point or another reboots of the franchise or remakes in that way. Like uh, this was not initially going to have Lee in it. Early concept art showed a different actor as Dracula. Um, I believe the same actor that went on to play Dracula in legend was uh, talked to, to appear in this movie as Dracula. Oh, so they, wow. So they weren't even considering Ralph Bates anymore. I guess, well, I guess they wouldn't considering he had just made an appearance in uh taste the blood but it's a shame that he again it's a shame that mr hammer potentially just uh you know was kind of cast aside after lee decided to come back yeah yeah that's and i would i would be interested to see how those conversations really went and how they got lee to agree if it was just a money thing if it was an ego thing i mean it it, it seems to me that some of it and i love lee but he does seem to be someone that responded well to ego stroking. <laughs> like, you know, if you sort of buttered him up the right way and kind of made him feel important, uh, that was something. You, you tell the man that the production needs him, you pay him what he's worth, and you damn well better make sure which, that which, if his which wife is enters yeah. the room, but it's, you, you stand. And you what's funny is story. even in these movies where he claims to be so uh, uh, disinterested, where he's obviously giving a shit. And, and and we've talked about this before. There were times where Lee was not giving a shit. Yeah. Uh, Dracula movies, in fact. Um, and that's not the case here. Um, and like uh, I was watching one of the making ofs and Jenny Hanley was talking about, you know, 
sort of this climax and uh, you know, how she would be sort of giggling in between takes as they were, you know, dealing with the makeup and the bat and different things. And uh, she talked about how Lee at one point she was giggling with the makeup guy and the other actor and Lee like sort of, sort of marched over and like scolded them yeah. and, and was Which, like, you know, this is, this is a very serious set and this is not the way that one should be acting. And we're dealing with this, you know, character and he would go into Vlad, the impaler stories and different things. And, and she, and they would have to sort of sober up very well, they, quickly. It's funny that you mentioned that because I, I, that story was related, I think in one of the documentaries on the, uh, was it a screen factory disc ball or the Warner disc? I, I don't even know what I have in the player right now. Um, uh, well, the, this is a, the U S release of this is scream. I'm watching okay. a studio canal. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but I believe the scream has like a new doc, but it should also have, there's a doc on the disc I have, but that should have been ported over to the scream. So you probably have that as well. So they did. They they told that story about how Christopher Lee would come over and do all of that, and then they would have to sort of. What's funny is, is in this really interview, Jenny Handley tells the exact same story, but the way she tells it, she was like, you know, we we would be giggling, and he would just sort of come over it and tone in this big booming Christopher Lee voice, like this is a very serious story. You know, we're dealing with real subject matter here. You know, Vlad Vlad the Impaler was a real man, and blah blah, blah. and apparently that just sent them into giggling fits even further. <laughs> like things had to be halted for a moment while he huffed away and they eventually composed themselves. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm trying to imagine these two kid actors essentially laughing their asses off at Christopher Lee's Dracula as he scolds them, you know, <laughs> <laughs> about Dracula. <laughs> exactly. What a meta scene, but like, well, and also though, I find it kind of interesting because for all of his hemming and hawing about how silly he thought these movies were, there he was on set of, you know, the freaking, what number was this? This was Dracula part five, five, six. And here he is. It was his fifth. Here's on Dracula five, yelling at someone about not taking it seriously enough, you know? (laughs) And this was a movie that he, he had to be convinced to do. So I think like a part of him for all the, the stuff he sort of espoused later on. I I don't know that all of it was entirely true. Um, I I think that a part of him did take it seriously and, and did hope for it to be powerful. And I think that this movie in particular, because Baker was a great director and engaged him as an actor and wanted to go back to the source material again and make something that was, not the book, but more in line with what the book was. I think that maybe suggests that Lee was more engaged in this movie than he was in the prior, gosh, probably the other three that he did before this. Yeah. No, I could see that. I, um, oh, those bats, man. And the day for uh, night shooting in this movie, though, is egregious. It's, well, I wonder rough. how much of it is the, uh, the transfer because I've seen that happen before where, you know, that's meant to be a processing thing. And then inevitably when some of these movies get ported over to DVD or Blu-ray, they improperly time them, you know, from the original elements. And as a result, you know, something that's meant to look, you know, a wash in blue to sort of, uh, you know, make it look like nighttime, you know, is completely forgotten. And as a result, somebody's running around in stark friggin' daylight. Yeah. Some of it's that, but like, 
I, I was I was reading and there's a I don't remember which disc, but there's a feature where they show kind of where they do all these transfers in the UK. Because a lot of these transfers are initially sourced from like Hammer's archives and done with a lot of love and care. Um, and there's only so much they can really do. Um, but I do know like the studio canal transfer I'm watching, which I think is ported over to the scream. I, 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 this, I don't know if scream did another transfer. Um, but I, I believe this transfer is on there. Um, but they, they were saying that like, this was kind of what was shot and it's about as good as they can do with it. Um, because the actual footage was even was much brighter. And if you make it any, if you sort of mess with it anymore, you'll start losing like color saturation to the point where things won't look right. Um, so that's why like, it just, uh, it's indicative of a lot of the lower budget stuff, like to go from the scene we were just in to this like dark castle scene. Like it is so starkly not the same time of day or, you know, lighting or anything. Um, so it's, but that, that's just common in hammer movies. This was just something that happened in almost every hammer film, especially the ones that had less money on a smaller time frame. Like those four movies, like, uh, uh, plague of zombies, the reptile, uh, Rasputin and, um, Dracula, Prince of darkness, less so in Prince of darkness because Fisher knew what the hell he was doing, but all of those movies have some pretty rough day for night stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. Dude, that sequence you were talking about the transition, that moment with Jenny Handley, I keep saying Handley, that moment with Jenny Handley running with like the billowing hooded cloak running through low hanging fog around a castle. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, yeah. that is the cover of every seventies Gothic romance, like paperback ever, you know, like yeah. that, that moment. I, I just adore it's, this movie is so it's a great set. Yeah, and this is one of the most beautiful looking movies I think in Dracula's run. Certainly, I think this is one of the best looking Hammer movies in its way. Yeah, well, and I love that she runs through that set. And as a viewer, you're kind of like disappointed you don't get to stay there longer. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah. the set's so great. Don't go in the castle, no. But then you know we go back to that set, and it it kind of makes you excited to get back to it. So again, it's just a really smart visual cue about where things are going to go um and and sort of the atmosphere that's kind of encroaching into the story um yeah this this whole finale is executed incredibly well and honestly there is you know this is the part of the movie that doesn't necessarily have to rely heavily on plot where the climax it's all action and I just can't help but think that if the rest of the movie had been as successful as the final 20 minutes, that again, this would be, I think this would want to be, this would be one of the great hammer films, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yep. It's, and I can't yeah. believe that I just, I can't, you know, if you had asked me a month and a half ago, if I would have said that about scars of Dracula, no, no. I would have laughed my <laughs> ass off at me, but, uh, well, no, again, I, on the think, revisit. I think unfortunately it's a really easy movie to write off. Um, like, if you just only peripherally pay attention to it, uh, you you could kind of go, ah, it's lesser Dracula. I'm not, I, it's not as good. And you just kind of write it off. You don't really engage with it. Cause it's, the problem is when a movie has a really shitty script, but is very 
very impressively done sort of from a visual perspective, that stuff can get kind of lost because you don't really notice the visuals if you're not as engaged in the film. You're not really like along for the ride. And I think like because we were doing like a commentary on it and because I had seen it before, I got to see it in a different way this time. I also think that it's a movie that not a lot of people revisit. I think they watch it once so they could have seen it and they kind of go, oh, it's Lesser Hammer, Lesser Dracula. And then they never go back to it because why would you? You know, if you think that you're, you're going to go back to the Dracula movies you really like. So I do think it's one that deserves another shot, though. Uh, the the blood on the breasts was uh, a very contentious thing with the BBFC. Apparently, uh, they I, I like this quote. Uh, they said it was a dangerous cocktail, and I think that's very telling of how they view sexuality and violence. Giggity. Um, no, I. <laughs> So sorry. You talk about wanting to spend more time on this set. The wind billowing their hair as she is retreating from them, like just how wonderfully gothic this entire setup is, how gorgeous it is. This this is one of the best climaxes Hammer ever had. If not one of the oh, best yeah. movies, certainly one of the best finales. It really is. Um, I mean, you get Dracula's... And I love that, like, you know, Clove turns on Dracula. What an interesting thing that the goodness or the, the beauty of this sort of like innocent convinces him to turn on this, this person that he, he truly worships because he still worships Dracula. He doesn't want to turn on him. It's hard for Clove to do it, but he does it. And I think that's kind of makes Clove a much more interesting character. Um, yeah. Like grabbing an iron bar and, you know, iron being this cleansing thing. Um, but it not being enough, like there's so many layers to how he has to defeat Dracula. I, I think it's incredibly fascinating. It, Paul, it, it I just, just uh, works on every we, level. Before we get to the very end, I just want to throw a super hot take out here. But, you know, it's it's we talked about it a little bit. We might as well talk about it a lot. Um, damn it. You know what? You know what? I'm going to I'm going to table it while we watch Dracula burn, because this is a, uh, is it Dracula or Michael Myers? I can't tell in a far shot. It's both. I'm kidding. It is. This is an amazing sequence and I'm willing to look past every, every little like, seam, the you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, whatever. Although this is great. The oh. silhouetted, which is really what they should have just done to begin with was him silhouetted. Um, and not shown us like close-ups and good lighting. Yeah, agreed, because this is, I mean, and there's something like, I don't know if they did something with the frame rate back then or how they decided to shoot him, but when it is the wide shot and he is in silhouette, the flames, like mm-hmm. the way just they look. And uh, Paul, you know me in real fire, I'm practically a pyro, like this is, uh, this looks amazing. Yeah. No, yeah, they definitely shot it in a different frame rate for sure. Um <clears throat> That's great. And it's, it's powerful. You like their connection feels stronger in a way. Like she, like that look she gives him at the end is the, one of the first times she looks really like enthralled with him romantically because throughout the whole film, she just seems kind of like uninterested in this guy she's supposed to be engaged to. Oh, he's, he's far more sexually attracted to Paul than she is to Simon. But there, once he freaking, I guess he had to, he only had to kill the most ancient, powerful vampire on the world to like win her over sexually, but it did it. <laughs> I mean, that, that is, you, you look at that final moment. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a man who's getting laid tonight. Um, yeah, he did it. 
We are creeps. I apologize. Only, only <clears throat> slightly less effort than uh, you know, Forrest Gump and all the shit he had to do to win Jenny's hand. Um, but no, I'm sorry. I'm piggybacking on that <clears throat> opening spiral gag. Um, no, I do love, and what's great is I love how the credits play out over this, uh, sort of frozen frame of Dracula's castle lit up in the foreground by the, the flames. And then in the background, it's cold blue. It just, it's really, really gorgeous. Yeah. Did you no, yeah. We're, we're, did you just, did you just say we're creeps? <laughs> I mean, we were being creeps for a minute. We, we were not. We were not. I apologize for nothing. I didn't um, say you no, should apologize. One of the uh, <laughs> I'm I'm going to be I'm going to I be like rem- I like making Jinx mad. It's I'm going mind. to be removed from Scream Addicts for two months while I sit and think about what I did. Um, <laughs> we're not getting into that. Don't start that. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. I'm not spending another forty minutes doing that again. Uh, although it might be more germane to the conversation now than it was before. No, the hot take I was actually going to throw out is that, you know what, whether it be like rubber bats on a string or puppets with two cowboys, you know, operating it or CG as seen in Dracula untold, I got to tell you off the page, I'm not certain that bats are a good thing for Dracula movies in any form. I'm, I'm wondering if we shouldn't retire that because we guys, we've tried it so many different ways and even, you know, arguably the best bat that we had was the one in Bram Stoker's Dracula, but that wasn't really a bat. That was like a bat creature. That doesn't count, you know? I think the best use of a bat in any Dracula movie is Dracula dead and loving it when he's a bat at the end and she finally gets him with the light. And as he's dying, the bat falls down. And he just goes, Ranfield, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and bursts into dust. I... Ranfield draws a little smiley face in the dust. (laughs) It's a perfect Dracula done loving. It's a perfect movie. That's all I'm going to say, but um, no, it really is. And it deserves the same sort of love that people freely give young Frankenstein. Someday that movie will get a nice Blu-ray and, and people can rediscover it. But that that is a movie that is primed for discovery, but we're going to have to table that. We're going to have to table the Dracula dead and loving it talk until we do get a nice Blu-ray. But in the meantime, Let's go ahead and wrap up with our final thoughts on Scars of Dracula. Paul, overall, how are you feeling about this movie right now? Yeah, um, so, you know, we talked a lot about it, but just to, I guess, summarize. I mean, I, I, I do think upon rewatch that this is a much better movie uh, than I gave it credit for and that it gets credit for. Um, it's, it really does try to bring the Dracula mythology back to the basics, um, I think, to its de- detriment. Um, I think the script is very much attempting to capture kind of a horror of Dracula vibe, putting Dracula more as the, uh, the host, um, you know, trying to win people over with his charm uh, while at the same time giving him an opportunity to show the, the sort of hollow loveless uh, nature of evil um, of that insatiable thirst that, that comes along with evil um, we get to see him in situations that we've never seen him before. We get to see him climbing up the castle walls. Um, he's he's terrifying in a lot of ways. There's there's more horror in this movie than in a lot of the other ones. Um, we get phenomenal performances, um, and and Roy Ward Baker turns in another just beautifully directed movie on the on the whole. Um, 
But where it falls apart is that in trying to go back to the these these basic ideas, we lost sight of what makes the Dracula movie so compelling, which is, you know, interesting characters with sort of age, you know, especially sort of whoever's occupying that Mina role. Um, she needs to have a sense of agency and drive and conflicting interest. And they just don't give Jenny Hanley's character enough um, to make her feel like a real person. Um, she really does feel like a prop and it's to the detriment of the film because you can't, it's, it's half of that, that coin. It's the other half of that coin. Um, if, if the character that Dracula is sort of trying to, um, you know, seduce is just a blank slate, then it's not really that impressive when he seduces her for God's sakes, this guy's brother does it just by giving her a picture of herself. Like what, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Um, and there's way too much sort of non sequitur set piece stuff that doesn't really amount to anything. I was kind of mentioning that I feel like the priest goes to the church and prays and then that's sort of it. And maybe he made the lightning strike by his prayers, I guess, but there, there's not enough things to connect the random dots. You know, the, the impetus of the movie being Paul, like in a weird Benny Hill Burgermeister rape plot is just such a bizarre way to get us to two people in Dracula's castle. You know, like there's a million other ways to have gotten us there that would have made sense. So it's just, it's a distractingly all over the place script that, that doesn't feel very focused, um, which is really a shame given how much of the movie works. Um, And I really wish that we could have seen, uh, you know, Baker's sort of vision with Lee's performance in a movie that was closer to horror of Dracula. And I wonder what franchise that would have given birth to um, as opposed to, you know, the next movie, which for all intents and purposes is a total reboot of what these movies were prior to them. Yeah, you know, that's curious. We haven't talked about that, but, you know, the idea that if this was intended to be a reboot, clearly it didn't work for them. You know, they they felt that they had to reboot yet again right after. You know, it's like uh, yeah. one of the later Terminator sequels, Um, you know, which is a weird parallel to draw, but it's true. Um, Yeah, no, I think you pretty much covered all the bases, like how I feel about it. You know, it's we talked about it before, but it was always the easiest dracula to pluck out of thin air to sort of hold up and say this is why this franchise is not as good as the frankenstein cycle this is why i can't take this franchise too terribly seriously is because we have movies like scars of dracula and satanic rites you know this is why this is why this is why you know that was this was the whipping boy out of all of the dracula movies for me anyway my go-to i'm sure you can hear it on prior episodes of this uh this show and yet you know Upon reflection, you know, upon rewatching it, I realized that this is actually a pretty damn solid movie in many regards. Again, aside from the uh, the sad fact that the script is surely wanting. Um, but but what's crazy to me is that I think that everything else is so well done yeah. that it's still, you know, I'm still going to hold it higher than a lot of other movies in this franchise because of how well made it is and how well executed it was. You know, it... it it couldn't have been easy, any easy task for the performers and the director to turn what was clearly 
you know, a, a script that was lacking into something that still wound up being a lot of fun for big stretches of the movie. So overall, I would uh, I would give this movie, I gotta say it, like a tentative thumbs up, you know, whereas I definitely wouldn't have before. And uh, I'm gonna say this is one of the better Dracula movies that we've seen up until this point. I'm very curious to see how the rest of the franchise is going to play on rewatches now. Yeah. I, yeah, I would definitely give it a, a positive review, whereas before, like, this kind of probably took my rating from, like, two out of five to, like, three out of five. <laughs> I like a whole star higher. Yeah, I think three out of five is fair. I think that's Yeah, the... like, it, it's, it's, the stuff that works works well enough that it, it makes up for the stuff that doesn't work. But had, had that other stuff worked, this would be top tier Dracula. For sure. So, yeah, yeah. No, well done, Scars of Dracula. Yeah, you did, did it, it after all these years. <laughs> I, yeah, that's. I, I'm surprised, to be honest. <laughs> this is one of the more surprising uh, rewatches of this whole show. I mean, the the credits hit. There is kind of a. Uh, well, I be da- I'll be. Oh wow, screwed that up. You know what? I'm just gonna keep going, folks out there. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, 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 let you in on something here, Paul and I had to re-record the last uh, Paul Watt, like uh, 40 minutes of this commentary, 45 yeah. minutes of this yeah, commentary. Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. Uh, we recorded this entire thing last week. Paul was drunk, and I didn't have a head cold. And both of those things have changed for the last part of this, so I'm sure it was uh, pretty jarring to listen to that difference. Yeah. But uh, yeah, my my uh, I just I see cold medication in my future and, uh, you know, hugging a pillow. Just, uh, and, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to watch a movie, so... There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but that concludes, on a very strange note, our commentary for Scars of Dracula. Paul, why don't you tell folks out there where they can find you at online and what they can keep an eye out for from you in the future? Uh, yeah, you can find me, as always, at the very modest handle of Paul is Great 2000 on Twitter, uh, where I tweet about horror movies and stuff. <laughs> Rock on, and uh, you can find, you know, I'll get to when you can find me. Uh, it's cool. I'm, I'm not going to mess this closing up. I'm just going to barrel right through it. Paul, as always, thanks for co-hosting. Oh, no problem. It was a pleasure. And there's my setup, and here I go. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below, scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.